VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the program. It's Wednesday, May the 10th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. Let's get at it. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial and get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, beautiful blue sky, albeit a bit of a blustery day, still a little bit chilly, but apparently heading to a high of 9 degrees today. I know there's some wintry slushy conditions in other parts of the province and hopefully the weather spruces up for you soon all right it's mchappy day had a family contact me via email ask me to give it a shout out not in an effort to promote anybody eating anything that they don't want to eat today but of course the proceeds or a portion of the proceeds are sold at every mcdonald's across the country today go to help fund ronald mcdonald house and of course we have one here in st john so mchappy day it is and congrats to all hands on happy valley goose bay who took it upon themselves whether it be the business community and some 70 businesses individuals and their families to try to do something to clean up the spring mess we all know the deal once the snow goes away it reveals an awful sight, and certainly that's the case here in the city of St. John's. But up in Happy Valley Goose Bay, the town actually put out a public safety warning about the amount of trash along some of the bike trails, for instance. So, but given that, there was four businesses kicked it off. Eventually, over a week and a half, some 70 businesses got involved. They contributed the cleaning supplies, over a hundred, or pardon me, over $10,000 worth of prizes, Air Borealis tickets, a barbecue set, a gardening set, and the amount of trash was too much to handle for the town alone. So the community took it upon themselves. So it's not only just cleaning the place up is that sense of community pride or pride in community which led to the massive effort up in happy valley goose bay so good for them and hopefully your community and hopefully this city does something similar today or soon all right watch a bit of the devil's game last night man they got popped 6-1 didn't look like the team that put up eight on the carolina hurricane the night before or game before so now they trail the series 3-1 newfoundland's labrador's own dawson mercer he's their last chance to make it a deep run and of course a lot of eyes will be on the toronto maple leafs tonight as they try to stave off elimination even though they don't look very good uh the growlers up three nothing in their playoff series against the reading royals so one six three last night come back home to try to wrap it up at mary brown center with their first ever sweep in playoff history for the growlers as they look for their second kelly cup tyler boland back in the lineup of course boland was called up to the uh, manitoba moose in the american hockey league played really well when the moose got knocked out they sent him back down to the growlers which is a real boost to the lineup boland is a stud out there so he scored last night in the 6-3 victory they'll try to wrap it up all right on this date one of the most iconic goals in nhl history was scored by bobby orr so there was, uh, let's see, 40 seconds into overtime. The Bruins won 4-3 against the St. Louis Blues. Four-game sweep in the final and gave the Bruins their first Stanley Cup in 29 years. So you can set it up. Orr takes a pass from Derek Sanderson from behind the net, and he put it behind Blues goaltender Glenn Hall just before he was tripped by St. Louis defenseman Noel Picard. So that pitcher of Orr flying through the air as he celebrates the Cup-winning goal is certainly amongst the most famous in sports history on this date. Number four, Bobby Owa. Stanley Cup winner. All right. Oh, and just a fun little note. Do you ever get sucked into watching Westminster Kennel Dog Show? Every now and then, I admit I do. Anyway, last night, a dog named Buddy Holly won the top dog prize. The first time ever that a petite Bassett Griffin Vendine won the best in show. And Buddy Holly, cute little thing, is the Westminster champion. I'm sure you cared about that. 
Okay. Part of the sparring in the House of Assembly yesterday was regarding the state of Frank Roberts Jr. High. Since we had a conversation on the program with uh, CBS member Barry Petten, several families have sent along their concerns and some associated photographs of exactly what's going on in Frank Roberts Jr. High. So you wonder at one point, at what point will it simply be deemed unsafe? You know, just the thought and the talk about rats makes my skin crawl and my hair stand on end. But apparently the walls are absolutely infested with rats. Now, this time of year, there's probably going to be a bunch of public and private buildings or homes that has a problem with rodents or vermin. And hopefully you don't get a rat infestation, but this becomes a massive problem. They show pictures of what looks to be rats tearing through uh, chairs in the teacher's lounge or ripping open a plastic Clorox wipes container, and on and on it goes. Some of these families say that they don't really feel like sending their kid in. Some of the children are actually fearful. Like, look, I understand that. If you can hear the rats scurrying around in the walls while you're sitting in your uh, sitting at your desk in class, unsettling to say the very least. So Mr. Penton's asking, you know, what's the plan? And apparently there is no immediate plan to deal with what's happening at Frank Roberts Jr. High, and that building is probably not alone. But in the most recent budget, there was $127 million for new schools, one in Cartwright, Portugal Cove St. Phillips, Ken Mount Terrace, as well as redeveloping the school on Pelly's Island, but nothing there for Frank Roberts Jr. High, and the families that have contacted me are absolutely in line with Barry Petten and his concerns. Now, as usual, some of the debates in the House of Assembly devolve into something that's really not that important. But this case, and I'm sure in other schools, you may be experiencing the same. I'm not sure to the extent that the overcrowded Frank Roberts Jr. High built back in the 60s has maybe reached its best before date. But some of the stories we're hearing and some of the pictures that have been sent, whoa, really not a pleasant sight, to be sure. Okay. The best constructed plans have to start with serious preparation. Because good ideas are all great in concept, but unless you have all of the moving parts in place to bring them to fruition, to make them, to make them actually as great as they sound, well, then we find ourselves in two particular spots where preparation may be not done to the extent it should have been childcare spaces. There's a report coming from the Child Care Resource and Research Unit talking about moving towards equitable, high-quality childcare in the country. They're looking at access to spaces. Apparently, in this province, there's only enough, I will say, the numbers are from 2021, so there may have been some improvements on this front, but we've heard the daycare stories. You know, when $10 a day was brought to bear, sounds great, but if you can't find a spot, it could be a million dollars a day. So they say that there's only enough space for 14% of children under the age of 12 in regulated childcare spaces in this province. National average is 29%. Okay, now the province has said that, you know, moving towards adding some 700 seats at the College of North Atlantic's Early Childhood Education Program should be able to help. The new pay grid for early childhood educators should help, but we are behind the curve. So once again, it feels like the card out in front of the horse, right? You know, we'll talk about the price per day, but that's meaningless for families who are on wait lists. I know some families that the wife is in their first trimester of her pregnancy and they've already submitted their name to a childcare space just hoping that by the time after a year of maternity leave or what have you, going back to work, that they'll be able to find a childcare space. So maybe, just maybe, 14% is a little bit low to reflect what's actually happening today. But again, the best laid plans really do require the effort up front for preparation. Now, you can't flip a switch. I understand that. And all of a sudden, there's access for 100% of children under the age of 12. 
but it hasn't worked out as necessarily it should or could have in this province. I think we can also attach that to the issues surrounding newcomers, in particular Ukrainians. So it's a year ago yesterday that the first flight of Ukrainians made its way from Poland to St. John's International Airport. Some 2,700 Ukrainians have arrived. Now, running for their very lives, and people understand that intervening early was just a necessary component of the international community reacting to the war in Ukraine. But that doesn't alleviate the fact that there was already a housing crunch, and so preparation to know how we were going to house newcomers, including Ukrainians, the job market a little bit tough on certain fronts. So inside that world of Ukrainian, 2,700 Ukrainians, apparently 600 are working, 600 are actively looking for a job. But even if they got a job, as this one story, this gentleman who was interviewed, he and his wife and his four children have been in a hotel room since December. So now they've implemented a new 45-day temporary accommodations policy. So there's a limited amount of time that newcomers, including Ukrainians, will be able to stay in hotels. So apparently no one's going to be left in a lurch if you apply for an extension that may indeed be granted. But again, for folks who, look, I understand the societal and the economic upside of immigration. Absolutely. But you have to be prepared. So how many Ukrainians will just run out of steam and say, well, obviously I can't stay here. I can't find a home, whether it be as a working Ukrainian, just simply don't have the money to get into your own market uh, housing, as referred to by Minister Byrne. Jim Din, the leader of the NDP yesterday, said that Minister Byrne more interested in headlines than the actual hard work required to accommodate whether it be overcoming any hurdles, transfer of credentials, or language issues, or housing, or access to health care. So again, in concept, makes all the sense in the world. In reality, isn't working the way that it has to. So if you want to take that on, we can do it. Absolutely right. Okay, preparation, pretty key. Looks like we're all in on hydrogen. Now, for some people, they are all in anyway. They think this is the next best opportunity facing the people of the province for economic opportunity, job creation, and to be in on the ground floor of a transition fuel that's basically in its infancy. So the province, Minister uh, Andrew Parsons and Andrew Fury, the Premier, pardon me, they were in Rotterdam in the Netherlands yesterday at the World Hydrogen Summit. So they say World Hydrogen 2023 will be doubling in size to keep up with the surging demand, and demand is surging, enabling twice as many companies to showcase, collaborate, do deals to advance the global hydrogen economy. Okay. So they're calling this the global springboard for hydrogen deals and project developments, where real action is displayed to inspire and motivate the rest of the world. 8,000 decision makers, energy ministers, CEOs from over 100 countries have gathered in Rotterdam. Now, Rotterdam is the largest inland port in Europe, the 11th largest container port in the world. Apparently, 15% of energy imports in Europe come through the port of Rotterdam, and this province is signed onto a memorandum of understanding to be part of the supply chain. Again, kind of feels a little bit like cart in front of the horse. Now, I know memorandums of understanding are just baby steps towards some contractual obligations for supply, but people who are still asking questions, I'm sure they hear and see this news and think, well, that's it. The province is all in on hydrogen. And, you know, there was a thought come from the Premier's office that he would stay arm's length away from it, specifically when we talk about World Energy GH2 and his whatever the extent of his relationship is with John Risley. So I'll put it out to you. 
is it important to be at these types of summits? I guess if the province has plans to be in the hydrogen game, then I guess not attending would be silly piece of business. But for folks who are still wondering about how this works, where the upside is for us, any environmental questions. I mean, questions aren't, ba aren't a bad thing. And asking questions doesn't mean that you're vehemently opposed to anything, is that you have a level of curiosity. Now, some people are absolutely staunchly opposed to these particular wind to hydrogen projects, but another MOU signed because we know, and this is in addition to the MOU signed with Germany for provision of green hydrogen. So we were at the summit and we've signed on with the port of Rotterdam, what do you think? And in the world of energy, Suncor has backed out Terranova oil production from its entirety production guideline for 2023. So, of course, that's a business issue, and whatever work was shoddy, shoddily done in Spain, they were supposed to be there for seven months. It took 13, floated back, and now it's out in Bull Arm having some work done. But always worth reminding ourselves that it's not just between Suncor, Synovus, and Murphy Oil when they restructured at the 11th hour to see if they can make a play to extend the life of the oil field for some 10 years. But we're in. 200 plus million dollars in cash, 300 million dollars in royalty relief afforded to Suncor and its partners. We don't know if there's any caveats or strings attached to any of those monies. You know, you can't attach a string to a royalty that's yet to be satisfied. But certainly with the cash on the barrel head, that was part of the federal government's oil recovery fund is what I think they called it. But they've backed it out in full. Okay, let's go. This afternoon at 1 p.m., the Minister of Health Community Services, Tom Osborne, will be offering the second health care action update. We talk about health care all the time because it's important. One of the key focus areas today apparently is going to be missed appointments. Now, we do need to know more about what government's doing to try to improve the system for recruitment, retention, whatever. But inside the world of missed appointments, it probably is a, an important focus area. It is frustrating when you go to a clinic and there's a sign at the receptionist's uh, desk that says X number of appointments have been missed this month or X number of appointments have been missed this year. While so many people are clamoring for an appointment, even to just be in one of these collaborative care clinics of which you have to register at Patient Connect to get in. So when people willfully miss their appointment, that's a problem. Now, there's got to be a better way for reminders to float because you can indeed be waiting an awful long time between when you get your appointment scheduled and when the actual date arrives. I get a text message to remind me of my hairdo. Then I suppose we could probably do a little bit better in reminding folks of their pending appointment because it's a busy life. Things get lost in the shuffle. You may wake up one morning and say, oh, I got that appointment today at 1 o'clock. I can't do it. can't do it. And just miss it on purpose without calling to cancel. That's not great. But it can slip your mind. It absolutely can. I got an appointment to see a specific doctor back in December. My appointment's not till June. I try to remind myself to look into my phone's calendar every day to make sure that I don't miss anything, including a medical appointment. So that's going to be part of the key focus area. And, of course, healthcare conversations are wide and broad, and we can take them on. There also been some discussion in the House of Assembly about emergency room closures, maybe moving off to urgent care clinics. Not satisfactory for many, including the folks out of Whitburn, possibly being a little bit better received down in St. Lawrence. But one of the stories regarding emergency room closures or the unpredictability of whether or not the emergency room is open is in Harbor Breton. So there's estimates that it's been closed for some 60 days this year already. And this comes with a massive implication for distance to the next opportunity for health care emergency care. If you need emergency care, 
on the Conagra Peninsula, Harbour Brighton in particular, and the emergency room was closed that day, you've got a 223-kilometer drive to Grand Falls, Windsor, whether that be in your own vehicle or in the back of an ambulance. So there's this lady who's telling the story. She's organized the rally in the area. Miss Allerhead is her name. Her father fell ill. Two hours and 24 minutes by ambulance to get to GFW. On the way, had to stop to check his vitals. So it really does feel like a massive problem. Is uh, An urgent care clinic may be better than nothing at all. And of course, recruitment is always going to be a concern. Harbour Breton is actually one of the four areas that the province has identified to offer an additional $200,000 signing bonus that can be stacked on top of every other incentive that you might be eligible for as a healthcare professional, but for this one, for doctors. So... You know, when we say, that, like the registered nurses, we're the lowest paid in the country, and that's going to lead to further problems, and doctors with their need to move from a strict fee-for-service to whatever this blended capitation model actually looks like and what it really means. But these bonuses, if they work in Bonavista, does that mean they will work in Harbour Breton? I guess time will tell, but that, that's a long way to go for your next closest opportunity for some emergency care. And inside the world of healthcare, once again, and I read the story, I don't know much about it, but we'll talk about it here if I can find it. And it's the conversation that we've had a couple of times in the past about at what age should you be able to get a mammogram, a breast cancer screening. There has been some adjustments made by a uh, group called the U.S. Preventative Services Task, Task Force. They released the update on Tuesday, saying that they think... To, from new and more inclusive science, they say that you should be able to get a mammogram every two years for women beginning at the age of 40 through 74. In this country, it's generally speaking 50. The problem was always voiced that there was the potential for false positives and consequently some intervention that may lead to further illness when it was not required. There's an oncologist quoted in the news story saying that, that those concerns are way overblown. So in this country, you do indeed have the opportunity to get a mammogram earlier. In Alberta, they've shifted their number to 45. Other provinces, you can indeed get a referral at the age of 40. You can even do it through a self-referral. But for people in Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, Quebec, and Newfoundland and Labrador, mammograms are only available for people the age of 50 or older. So apparently the science also does say, now there's going to be some current screening guidelines updated coming from the Canadian Task Force on Preventative Healthcare. And the last time they did that was back in 2018. Apparently the science also says that for black women or Asian women, they have the potential to develop aggressive breast cancer 10 years earlier than Caucasians. I have no idea why that would be, but that's part of the approach that the group in the United States has taken. And if you want to talk about the mammogram age at which you can get one in this province, we're happy to do it. Read an interesting article in the Financial Post yesterday. It's a concept that I've brought forward several times. Sometimes I get a, a taker on it. Canadians, the way we work has changed, right? Whether it be Canadians who are remote working, and that was part of the kerfuffle between the Treasury Board, CRA, and the federal government. And then it's the concept of the four-day work week. It's remarkable that more employers are willing to entertain it because when companies have done it, they see an uptick in... Uh, productivity, efficiency, the employees are more content, more likely to stay. It won't work for every industry and it won't work for like, for me for instance, we're open seven days a week and that's never gonna change. But Canadians, 
by a huge swath. Now, some surveys and polls, you have to take them with a grain of salt. You know, it's one thing to ask 1,500 Canadians what they think about a four-day work week. And inside this poll and the story written in the Financial Post, 93% they'd be interested in it if their company was willing to offer it. So I like the thought of it. It's never going to come to pass for me. But put that out there for your consideration. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. You know the deal. That means you have to call. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Jim, you're on the air. Yes, good morning. Good morning to you. How are you this morning? Not too bad, I suppose. How about you? Not too bad. Okay. Listen, I, uh, my son is going to university. And last year, he uh, got a job when he got out of school with a construction company in St. John's. And uh, when he, he he was a good worker, and when he finished up, they were sorry to see him go and they told him he'd have a job as soon as he got out of university this year. So they called him up in March and asked him when he'd be ready. He told him 24th of April. So 24th of April came, and he uh, gave him the, 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 he called him, and uh, he never got much of a response. And then he called him again, and he said that uh, well, they give him a call even when they needed him. And they've been, like, screwing him around ever since. So yesterday, he finally found out that the reason why he's not getting back to work is because they fired on the Ukrainians, which are paying 75% of their wages. So my tax dollars now is going to pay an Ukrainian to work in my son's place, you know, where he could have had a job for the summer. He needs his money to pay his tuition and stuff like that. Okay, so what, who's paying 75% of the wage? The government is paying 75% of the wages, as far as I know. That's what he heard from a company official. Yeah, I'm not so sure about that part of the story. Uh, but, you know, I think the concept is is that I guess you're suggesting that a Ukrainian has taken your son's job. And so they're, quote-unquote, possibly, are you, are you suggesting they stole your son's job, or how would you like to characterize it? Well, I mean, um, my taxpayer's dollars shouldn't go towards paying a Ukrainian 75% of his wages. They never paid 75% of my son's wages when he was working. And he could have had his job right now, but he can't because the Ukrainian got his job taken. What difference would it make if it was a Ukrainian or someone who was uh, ready and willing and able to work full-time versus a university student only willing and able to work during the summer? Well, I mean, he, he was guaranteed his job, but he hasn't got it now because the Ukrainian got his job. That's the difference. I mean, Jerry Byrne is going around patting himself on the back for how wonderful he is. But Jerry Byrne don't know up from down. You know, never has. But, I mean, uh, you know, why should my son be out of a job? And the government taking my taxpayers' dollars to pay 75% of their wages. I'm going to have to confirm that. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but would it make a difference to you if uh, someone from Alberta had the job versus your son? It wouldn't make no difference, no. As long as they're not paying 75% of their wages, 
this boy, my son, haven't got a job because they're paying these companies for, to, you know, taking the opportunity to get 75% paid. So they only, they only need 25% of work out of the guy because they're already getting paid 75%. I don't really know that to be true, to be honest with you. I'll have to confirm as to whether or not that's a fact or that's something that's just made its way into the conversation from who knows what source. If it's true, fair enough. If it's not, then I think there's a different conversation to be had around this. But the concept of taking someone else's job, I mean, even just here in the country, you know, people complain about that all the time. Like, for instance, how many people from this province have been working in Alberta and an Albertan was unable to get a job because someone from St. John's had the job? So, you know, the concept of it's our job, if there's no 75% support, then it's our job. I don't know if we can call it our job because people are, are traveling around the country, around the world, taking jobs, and I'm sure the locals will feel it's a problem. I mean, the same conversation happened down in St. Lawrence, right? When they were reopening the floor spire mine a few years ago, and the commitment was people from St. Lawrence would be given preference. And then, lo and behold, some of the people that were hired had to commute into St. Lawrence to take the job. So there's always going to be a kerfuffle when locals don't get the jobs that they think are owed to them. Let me find out if I can confirm this 75% issue. Yeah, but I mean, if I go to Alberta to get a job, uh, the Alberta government is not going to pay 75% of my wages to go up there, you know? Well, it depends what you're working at, because the amount of money flowing from government or in the form of whether it be subsidies or tax credits, in essence, many oil-related jobs do indeed get a kick-in from the government. There's been billions of dollars in subsidies for that industry, and I'm only referencing oil because we're talking about Alberta, and many people here would have been moving to or working in Alberta in the oil fields. But I'll confirm that pot of money, and if that's not the reality, then I think it's a different conversation. I'd like for you to find out if that's the case, that they're paying... Yes, I will try to do exactly that. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Let's keep going here. Go to line number three and say good morning to the Conservative Member of Parliament for Coastal Bay, Central Notre Dame. That's Clifford Small. Clifford, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. How are you today? Not too bad. How about you? Pretty good, thanks. So we'll add in that you're the Shadow Minister for Fisheries, Oceans, and the Canadian Coast Guard. What's on your mind this morning? Uh, well, tomorrow, uh, this morning, uh, the first thing I'd like to talk about here are some resolutions that got passed at the at the recent Liberal convention uh, that are very anti anti oil. Uh, the main one is uh, number four thirty one that the the federal government require federal public investment funds to divest from fossil fuels. Uh, I think that's a very negative thing towards our, our oil and gas industry in Newfoundland and Labrador, and I can't believe that uh, our that our representatives in the Liberal Party let that happen, Patty. What exactly does the policy say? It's it's a policy that they, they want to, to require federal public investment funds, such as CPP, to divest from investing in uh, fossil fuels. Should governments be investing in those types of natural resources as opposed to the private sector companies that are making record profits? Well, I think for for the members of those, you know, CPP, we're we're all in in the uh, in CPP, so uh, that that pension fund needs to make income because 
let's face it, we've got an aging population, and to to support our seniors and, and people that rely on that, they need to invest in things that that can that can bring uh, return and uh, for the for the foreseeable future and a long ways down the road, fossil fuel is going to be developed and used. So you're suggesting that all of a sudden fossil fuel profitability will be jeopardized because the government isn't subsidizing it directly with cash on the barrelhead? I, I can't see that as a subsidy. I mean, the CPP is investing in the oil and gas industry the same as anyone else would invest in a bank. CPP is invested in all kinds of stuff. I mean, we're in strip malls in Saudi Arabia with CPP investments. Um, uh, okay. But, you know, the whole concept of the liberals are anti-oil. You know, it's hard to see how that's translated to the reality on the ground. I mean, even in the most recent COP27, the, the countries were asked to sign on to a weaning off fossil fuels arrangement or agreement, and Canada didn't. We were one of the very few who would not sign that document. And that was even re- our representative, Stephen Gibo. Everyone knows of his envi- environmental background, so we didn't sign on to that. They approved Beta Nord. They put a couple of hundred million dollars in the hands of Suncor and its partners for Terra Nova. We bought a pipeline that's going to cost us $30 billion or more, which is the furthest thing from a prudent investment. So the anti-oil, it seems like it's a political talking point versus a reality. How, what do you think? Well, that's the recent past that you're talking about right there. Mm-hmm. We're looking at the future here. And uh, also looking into the future, uh, all uh, light vehicles in, in Canada are supposed to be uh, electric vehicles by 2035. And right now we've only got, we've got a, a lithium mine in Manitoba owned by China and shipping all their lithium to China. So if it's going to take 10 years to develop a lithium mine, uh, where, where are we going to have the lithium to to uh, develop these electric vehicles? And, you know, there's lithium being produced in various countries around the world, but the entire world is, is competing for that. And Canada is having no part in the, uh, in the production of lithium. So... Um, it's kind of like talking out of both sides of your face, Patty. Yeah, the 2035 grandfathering, uh, whatever, whoever has an internal combustion engine in 2035 can continue to drive it, all new vehicles, so will be electric. That's aspirational. I don't even know if that's realistic, to be honest with you, for a variety of reasons. But uh, just for clarification, that Chinese company and that lithium mine, wasn't there a determination made in the uh, recent months that they, China had to divest their equity position in that mine through the uh, Investment Act? Well, we'll see how that goes. Wasn't that the suggestion? China's China was told they had to divest in three critical mineral companies, and that was all pr- brought forward by legislation, which is on the books, called the Investment Act? Well, they were told, but uh, is it going to happen? Look how long it took to get that uh, Chinese uh, diplomat expelled from, from Canada after the, the Michael Chang uh, incident, and also with the uh, Chinese police stations that are operating here. Uh, well known, still no action. We'll see. Uh, I wouldn't hold my breath on it, Patty. Yeah, of course, diplomatic wranglings or tit-for-tats are different than things that are actually part of legislation, which can be enforced easily and readily. Now, whether or not the Liberal government has followed through on a declaration to actually make it real, I guess we'll have to see. And I don't know the details inside that, but I do know that those three companies that the Chinese were had an equity position in, based on that piece of legislation, they, were, they had to divest. Now, where the teeth is and how long it's going to take for that divestment to take place and to ensure it happened, I don't know the answer to that question. Exactly. And we're, and we're, looking, we're looking at a federal government right now that's, that's weak on global affairs and trade. I mean, we've been pressuring uh, the Liberals to 
to to support our our crab industry in Atlantic Canada by by hammering down on Japan and getting Japan to stop buying Russian crab. We're sitting here with a, anywhere from a, a one billion to four billion dollar trade deficit on average for going back to 2015 with Japan. So we're in a very strong position if the federal government would choose to support the crab industry in Atlantic Canada. And it's not going to be a solution for this year, but we've got we've got to look over the next few years. It's going to take some time to uh, to, to to get Japan back to the table in a meaningful way, but it needs to happen. But realistically, how does that happen? I'm curious to understand how that stuff can actually take place. So would it require imposing sanctions on Japan because they haven't lived up to some of the G7 sanctions against Russian products, whether it be petrochemicals and or crab or anything else? How does it work? Japan, Japan says that seafood is an essential, you know, seafood is essential to their, their culture and, and for their diet. But you know, snow crab is a, is a bit of a luxury product. You know, it's not herring or mackerel or cod or, or, or some other low-priced, low more affordable uh, seafood that can be put on the table. Uh, it's a luxury, a luxury item. And uh, it it needs to be addressed. I think uh, I think if if the desire was there, if it meant enough to the federal government, Japan would be stopping buying Russian snow crab, and they'd they'd uh, they'd bring some balance, at least at least a l- work towards a little balance in that trade deficit, Patty. I wonder what percentage of crab from our waters makes its way to Japan. I hear a floating number. I can't get anyone to give me anything very definitive on that front. The Association for Seafood Producers tells us that the vast majority of product makes its way to the United States and the white tablecloth market there, which is where we've seen a real depression in the price. Uh, So I don't know what role Japan plays. I suppose it plays some. If they turned away all Newfoundland Labrador crab in preference to Russian crab. That's part of the story. I wonder what percentage that would be. I'd like to get that number. It, it floats between 4 and 10%, but that's of, that's of Atlantic, Atlantic Canadian crab. Right. It's a higher percentage of Newfoundland and Labrador crab. And right now, that's what I'm concerned with. So we'll keep working on that. Uh, on another note, Patty, uh, on the federal side, We've been we've been putting pressure on the minister to double the, the quota of northern cod in, in light of the the high catch rates, the per unit catch rates are, are double for northern cod than they are anywhere else in the North Atlantic. So, working with the minister on that and giving her some feedback and hoping that the mackerel fishery reopens. So far, no decisions on mackerel or cod. So I see that as a positive thing. Um, so uh, we, we we need to get a little bit more of a diversified fishery and the the resource resources are starting to rebound however slowly but uh with the cod biomass where it is now before under to 500,000 tons uh, there's no reason we can't have a, a 20 to 20 to 30,000 uh, ton uh, cod quota and and that would and that would uh, that would cushion some of the blow of of what's going to happen there because the, the the crab fishery I'm 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 hoping and and, and praying that it's going to get going and that all sides are going to come to the table to work this out but it, it, in the meantime 
uh, we need a few other species that the, the, the harvesters and the processing sector can avail of. Yeah, mackerel makes no sense to me. The decision made by Minister Murray on that front is a shared stock with the United States. The stock might be in some form of trouble, so they reduced the quota that they were allowed to fish in the United States. We had a complete moratorium. So it doesn't make much sense if we've agreed amongst countries that is a shared stock, then there should be a little bit more uh, consistency across the board with whether or not we fish it in part or in full or not at all. So that one has never made sense to me. Uh, I appreciate the time. Clifford, anything else quick before I go? No, that's all, Patty. You have a great day and uh, all the best with your show. The same to you. Thanks, Clifford. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Clifford Smalls, the CPC member for Costa Bay Central, Notre Dame. Let's take a break. When we come back, Rodney Goody, he's the president of the Paramedics Association. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back. As advertised, joining us on line number four is the president of the Paramedics Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Rodney Goody. Hi, Rodney. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Best kind. Thank you. How about you? Not too bad. I just want to uh, call in and give a bit of an update on uh, what's been happening with our paramedicine system here in our province. Um, so with our recent budget announcement with the $9 million allocated now for uh, converting the 60 services down to one, uh, we're starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel of uh, starting to see some progress being made of making changes to our system here in our province. So right off the bat, you know, with that, that was one of the only pieces of news that came out of the budget this year for most of us who were following along with the announcements day after day, week after week, was this move. Has your association been brought into the conversation, or are we simply waiting for a consultant's report to find out more? Yeah, we've uh, the consultant's uh, is the, sort of the downfall of all of this. Another consultant after we've seen, uh, you know, five or six different uh, reports done over the years. Uh, so that was a little discouraging, but uh, hopefully uh, the consultant can do the work fairly quickly with all the information that's been compiled over the years and uh, have that information, uh, you know, done relatively quickly and not uh, not delayed for a number of uh, number of months or years kind of thing so uh, like i said it is uh, discouraging to see another consultant come in and do more work uh, but hopefully it is uh, you know the step in the right direction in regards to uh, making transfer- transformation of our paramedicine system here if you were a shadow consultant on this file where would you direct their gaze their eyes about some of the key pieces of information that need to be incorporated into whatever this n- new landscape will look like yeah, there's a lot of components. Uh, you know, they mentioned in the budget, too, about looking at a centralized medical dispatch. That is key. Uh, when you look at uh, how the dispatch systems, uh, how dispatching is done for the ambulances across the province, uh, every service is a little bit different in how it's done. So having one centralized medical dispatch is going to be definitely key in having an actual proper uh, paramedicine system set up in our province to start. You really need that groundwork before you can really implement uh, further changes down the road. So having that in place will be key. And then also looking at you know how the overall system uh, is laid out you know looking at uh, how many uh, trucks we need in each area rather than having a pile of trucks in one particular area uh, maybe spread those out furthermore uh, setting up uh, establishing bases and uh, setting up a, a proper or I shouldn't say proper but uh, a more elaborate uh, non-medical transport system we, we see that in uh, certain parts of our province now uh, but it's not all the way throughout our province so these are um, basically like ambulances that uh, can do can do the transfers but don't have paramedics on board. Uh, so you use the paramedics for the emergency situations and use uh, either um, EMRs or use uh, medical first responders or some of the advanced first aid uh, to do the non-medical trans- uh, transfers that are being done already. And some provinces, they do that in full. 
It's fully incorporated into their ambulance system. Uh, let me get back exactly. to a point that you made uh, right off the bat there was talking about where the ambulances are. There's some thought that this might be very much a centralized hub and spoke type of setup. You're suggesting that we do a, a, the exact opposite, decentralized. So more bases, so that more buses, pardon me, the law and order, more ambulances will be in different parts of the province versus potentially a long commute time from a hub to go down one spoke or another. Did I hear that right? Yeah, I mean, it all depends on, uh, you know, what part of the province you're talking about. But, I mean, and there's also different avenues to be looked at as well. I mean, uh, we did hear down in the southern shore about uh, the minister mentioned about putting in, uh, like, a rapid response unit in, like, an SUV unit. So that's not something you can have solely. You need to have that in cooperation with uh, an ambulance uh, in that area. Uh, that's not going to replace an ambulance, but it can definitely support an ambulance. Uh, so if you incorporate other resources instead of just simply ambulances all over the place, uh, then you can definitely uh, change the landscape of the paramedicine system in our province. So it's about not just uh, you know moving trucks around or uh, putting, uh, putting the new bases in place. It's about really changing the, the entire structure that we have here in our system uh, to a better system. Uh, and this is the time to do it now that we are looking at restructuring things. There's best practice models out there to adopt. We're not reinventing the wheel. Exactly, 100%. I never uh, like the idea of uh, reinventing the wheel. You got to look at uh, how things are being done elsewhere, uh, pick the positive things that uh, other places are doing, uh, eliminate uh, the negative things, and uh, you know make the, the best system that we can here. The questions that I would have, in addition to what you pointed out, is do we foresee there being fewer ambulances, consequently fewer paramedics, because when the public system takes it on, I'm sure there's going to be some attention to how much it will cost, whether it be amalgamating the air with the ground and or how this new system looks. Is that a question or a worry that you and your association would have? Um, it is a worry in, the, in regard to uh, you know how many paramedics we'll actually need uh, with this uh, newer system that we're going to have. Uh, like I said, if we change the, the layout of it, uh, you do end up having kind of moving personnel around in regards to having uh, sort of the MFRs, the the medical first responder, the EMRs, emergency emergency medical responders uh, could primarily be on the non-medical side of things, um, on the sort of doing the transfer. So the number of paramedics may not be impacted, but ultimately it's going to have to look at how the system is going to be set up in order to know how that's going to look ultimately. Yeah, that would be my thought is that if we change the structure of the system and incorporate different medical professionals in the transfer world that it might indeed translate to fewer paramedics. I don't know, and I don't have a crystal ball. Uh, Rodney, do you happen to know some of the personal stories, whether it be paramedics that were working for Smiths or working for Fewers and all the changes we've seen there, whether it be in Whitburn, Trapassi, or otherwise, whether or not they stayed or left? Because I remember this one young lady who was working for Smiths in Whitburn. She said unless there was some solution to her now jobless nature, she was going to Halifax. Do you happen to know any of the follow-up stories there? Uh, for the ones out of uh, Whitburn, I have heard that a, a majority, if not all of them, are working somewhere else in the province. Okay. Uh, there was actually a bit of a shortage of uh, paramedics in the southern shore area, which is part of the reason why I think the ambulance in that area is uh, kind of looking at uh, pulling out. And so uh, I think I heard that a number of them have gone down there. So uh, in one positive uh you know, look at that. Is that you know, you did uh, we did we did lose that service in Whitburn, but we actually gained paramedics in an area that we're, was struggling to uh, obtain uh, paramedics on the southern shore. So, um, sort of a uh, a silver 
lining, so to speak, in that regard. I think there was some of them that went other services. Not all of them went down to uh, Southern Shore. But uh, as far as I know, I haven't heard of any of them that have left the province yet. And hopefully we don't lose any any more paramedics, uh, either to uh, other professions leaving the profession to go somewhere else or to leave our province to go somewhere else. Uh, we've already had uh, you know numbers of uh, people over the years leaving our profession and leaving the province to go elsewhere, and we don't want to lose any more. So hopefully, uh, as well with these uh, transition to a, a newer system, a paramedicine system, that hopefully we don't lose any more people and we continue to attract more people to the profession as well. One region that struggled mightily over the years is Labrador. Been a revolving door for paramedics coming and going. If I remember correctly, reading a news story some some time ago, is that the longest serving paramedic in the area had only been there for like a year, and people are coming and going, not not getting what they expected or anticipated when moving to Labrador. Do we have any more understanding of stability in that region? Uh, as far as I know, I don't think we still ha- we don't have any more stability in that area. We still have sort of that revolving door of uh, paramedics coming in for sort of a locum uh, experience, uh, coming there for a couple months or going uh, fly in, fly out for work up there for two weeks, home for two weeks type of thing. Um, and I'm not really sure exactly what the uh, solution will be there, but that's something that we'll definitely have to look at further. Appreciate the time this morning, Rodney. Anything else quickly? No, I think that's it. Thank you very much, Patty. Good to have you on, Rodney. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Rodney Goody. He's the president of the Paramedics Association. Let's take a break. When we come back, food. Food first and L specifically. Josh Mee is their CEO. He's next. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Bill, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Uh, yes, I heard the uh, conversation about the fellow uh, father and his son not being able to get a job because of the uh, Ukrainian wage subsidies. Yeah. And uh, I'd like to uh, mention some examples, uh, not in regards to the Ukrainians. Um, I had a sign and graphics business in Calgary for 30 years, and I met a lot of people, heard a lot of business plans. And one of my customers, what they did was they hired people with, that were on EI, and the government paid their wage for 50, 50% for three months. And then when, when that program was over, they went to straight commission, and then this, this uh, company hired another group of people. Uh, here's an, another example. I rented a room out to a woman here who got a job with Sears. And she thought it was all great. It was going to help her out. And then when her training program was over in six weeks, when she went to work, she found out that it was straight commission and no subsidized wage or no guaranteed wage. Uh, The point I want to make is that this is a business model for many companies. And while it helps them hire people and save money on their wages they're paying out, uh, their profit margin is increased by it. Uh, I kind of find it a bit dis dishonest i never hired a, an employee on a working program uh people have said bill your business would have gone a lot further hire a bunch of vietnamese refugees get one as the boss and let them hire the other people and the company just runs well i can't what am i going to say to my friends and say bill why don't you hire me you know i worked with you before well i can't and i think it's a it's a business model now what do you do when you got government employees uh, working with the program to find work for these people and they're making 50 to 60,000 a year and they're spending their money at home depot and the gas station and the bar and the restaurants and it's a strange business model and unfortunately some people are getting caught in this i mean i've i was uh, denied jobs when i was younger because of affirmative action um it's a sad thing. It hurts. It hurts a lot. You don't know what to say or what to do. You wonder why they're picking on you. 
Unfortunately, it's a business model for a lot of companies. I don't think it's a very honest way of going about things. Well, regarding affirmative action and otherwise, I guess people who were unable to get jobs uh, over the course of decades simply because they were the wrong religion, the wrong color skin, the wrong ethnic uh, background or what have you, I'm sure they thought the other system was a bit unfair as well. The issue regarding the business model that you uh, spoke to, I mean... The unfortunate reality is the way the economy is structured, businesses who are by and large profit-driven and profit alone, every single loophole available they'll take advantage of. Look no further than the mercy wage subsidy and how many companies created dividends or expanded dividends for their shareholders or stock buybacks or just uh, increased profitability for a subsidy that they didn't need. Their company was not in jeopardy. So we see this kind of stuff all the time. And the government sponsored for the government subsidy for workers. I have the numbers now, so if people want to hear them, and this is for, I think Jim was his name, the first caller about his son's inability to get his construction job back. Here it is. It's called Jobs in L42. So the subsidy is as follows. For the first 14 weeks, a subsidy up to a maximum of $12 towards an hourly wage. In the second 14 weeks, zero subsidy towards wage. In the third 14 weeks, up to a maximum of $12 per hourly for the hourly wage rate as well. So that's how that subsidy works. Just want to give the people the numbers because I said I'd follow up and I got the numbers. Uh, I appreciate you bringing up the little uh, facts that people don't know. It tends to put it into proper perspective. Yeah, just trying to put some meat on the bone as opposed to I didn't know the numbers specifically. So when I saw them, I figured I should talk about them. Well, I'm glad you did, and you're the only news person I can listen to that actually asks some of the questions instead of just giving out the talking points. Well, thank you very much for letting me have a say, and I hope he finds a job. And I feel sorry for anyone else that gets caught in this program because they're not—they don't hit—they the, the boxes don't get ticked for them, so they don't get the job. Appreciate the time this morning, Bill. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. Uh, will I take Paul before the break? Uh, sure. Okay, let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the executive director at the Eating Disorder Foundation. That's Paul Toomey. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you doing? Best kind. Thank you. How about you? Not bad at all, sir. I'm not going to take much of your time. I just wanted to let people know that we're 15th, so we're one, two, three, four days away from the first uh, 50-50 sweep draw, and as of right now, the winner is going to take home over $1,500, but there's still lots of opportunity to purchase. Call our office, 709-722-0500, or just go to our website for details, edfnl.ca. And that's pretty much all I wanted to say to you this morning. Everybody loves a 50-50, so it's two bucks a ticket, three for five. You can oh, do yeah. it. I think you can do it online, or you can just call the office at 722-0500. Yeah, we, okay. um, we, can't, we can't do it online per se we we need to talk to somebody but you can you can pay by um, uh, an e-transfer you can pay with your visa or your mastercard or you can pop by and give us cash if you want to come by our office uh, we're open to it but um, it's um, it's a great opportunity to uh, to win a decent amount of money 1500 bucks is nothing to sneeze at. The draw date is the 15th of May, so call 722-0500 to get in on the 50-50. And maybe you'll also want to consider attending the Atlanta Current Butterfly Gala, which comes up, I think, was Friday the 9th of June? Friday the 9th of June, but uh, a little bit of news on that one, Patty. Uh, Nobody else can attend. We're actually sold out. We're at capacity in the room. Fabulous. Good news. Yeah. It's been a wonderful, wonderful response from... 
the business community on this one, they've come forward in, in droves, and I guess it could be the, the four-year hiatus. We haven't been there since uh, 2019. But the galley is sold out, but if there's anybody out there wants to make a donation towards our online auction or our live auction, we'll certainly accept those. Appreciate the time. Once again, get in on the 50-50, 722-0500. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Patty. Appreciate the time. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, it's Paul Toomey, the executive director at the Eating Disorder Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. All right, Josh Mee was able to stick with us through the newscast. We're coming back to talk food first. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Go back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the CEO at Food First NL. That's Josh Smee. Good morning, Josh. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. What's going on at Food First? What are we talking about? Well, lots. Uh, I can start with, I'm calling you from Snantony today. So we are up, uh, myself and a few of our team are up here on the Northern Peninsula this week. Uh, we're doing some community meetings uh, for a project we've got going called Great Things in Store. So we're, we've got retailers now all over the province working with us. Uh, trying to get retailers on board to to fight food insecurity in some creative ways. So we're doing a community meeting tonight up in Sanansi at 7 p.m. and then tomorrow night up in Plum Point. So uh, if folks are listening and care about food on the Great Northern Peninsula, uh, first uh, call out to to come out to these and uh, and have a chat with us. So that's uh, that's what's on the radar screen right now. And uh, just a bit south of here, we're just about to relaunch our uh, Western Newfoundland Food Hub. So that's getting on the go as well. We just uh, hired our team and building that back up. So lots on the move up. All right. Before we get into the Food Hub team, you talk about creative ways that retailers can get involved in this food in store, such as... Yeah, I think one of the things we think about is, like, where do most people get most of the food that they're eating, right? It's from your local store. Uh, And we want to figure out, are there things we can do to partner with stores to make food more accessible, especially to people with low incomes, uh, right? So that could look like a lot of different things. We've been doing community meetings for this project with some of our other store partners around the province. And, for example, there's a lot of talk uh, coming up around transportation. So say you're, uh, you know, a low-income, Come senior in St. Anthony here or down in Flowers Cove, Plum Point, you know, how are you getting to the store or how is the food from that store getting to you? You know, those the, the transportation piece is really massive in food access. We're also talking about, you know, what can we do to partner with stores to make it easier for them to have, say, the kind of fresh foods that people would like to have uh, around a little bit more, because that can be a real challenge, especially the farther you get from, from distribution, right? So can we do something to, to tweak the supply chain a bit or, or give people a hand in, in getting the foods that they want and getting foods that won't go bad on them, uh, you know, a couple of days after you bring them home? Because that's also a big part of, uh, of why food budgets uh, for a lot of people are so high stuff doesn't last once once you buy it and so thinking about things like that but we're pretty open you know we've uh, we've got some flex to to pilot some projects with with stores and we want to hear from community you know what what the challenge is for them and how the store might help solve it yeah how long food lasts is a massive issue and food waste in this country is off the charts it's easy enough for me living in the east end of st john's i can shop every day you know because it's in my neighborhood the grocery store is right there hop skip and a jump from where i live so that's one thing but proximity issues is a massive concern for so many people especially in the area that you're talking about now and then even further north into Labrador if you're making a pitch to a retailer to be involved we know what the upside is for the individual or their families what's in it for the retailer so to speak 
I think there's a couple of things. You know, we know, especially in small communities, retailers are are such an important community space, right? They are they're the third place for a lot of communities. You know, the place that's not work and not home where you see your neighbors. And so, you know, the better that a retailer can do at meeting the needs of the community, that's going to help their business keep going because it's a tough business, right? Margins are tough. And we know lots of retailers, they have ideas and thoughts uh, about what they could do in this space, but they don't often have a lot of time because, <laughs> you know, uh, it's a tough business. And so what this project does is it we've got some staff time now that we can put on to help retailers plan this stuff out. We've got some money that we can spend to help pilot these projects and see what works. And so I think it, the pitch to retailers has been, you know, we know you care about this stuff. You might not have had time to work on it. So that's where a community organization like Food First fits in. And then hopefully on the other side of it, you know, you've got a store that does an even better job of, of, of serving its community. And that'll be good for you long term, right? Tell us about the Food Hub team in Western NL. What's their role? What are they doing? Yeah, so anyone listening who might remember our pilot season on this, which was back in 2021, we started a project called the the Western Newfoundland Food Hub. And what that was, uh, and will be again, is an online store that lets uh, lets customers order from as many local producers as sign up to the store. So basically what ends up happening is uh, you go online. Well, first, at the beginning of the week, the, the producers go online. They log into the system. They say, okay, this week, this is what I got available I have. You know, five bags of carrots, I have 20 bags of turnips, whatever. And then customers can log on that week, make their order. And then behind the scenes, what we do is we take care of collecting everything in bulk from all the different producers, bringing it back to a hub, and then breaking those orders up. And what you get at the other end is a box that says Patty Daly on it that has products from, say, a dozen different farmers in that box or a dozen, dozen different producers in the box. And we, uh, the labor is actually done as a partnership with Choices for Youth. So the folks packing those orders are, are young people who might have some barriers into the labor market. And so they get some work experience out of it as well. So the goal is to make it easier for folks to access all the richness of, of local food, right? Because, you know, say you're living in Cornerbrook, uh, you know, you're surrounded by um, really great local producers. But it can be really hard to get at them unless you're willing to get in your car and spend the day driving from farm gate to farm gate. And so saves you the time, but also saves the producers the time and the risk of, say, coming into town and setting up a table and not knowing how much you're going to sell, right? No doubt. So I know there's a report coming regarding food charity. So give us an update on that. And then I want to talk about proximity a little bit more. Sure, yeah. So that's the other big thing that's on our radar screen. We're just in the final stages doing the graphic design on a on a big report. So uh, if folks remember, we spent much of last year talking to food charities, so food banks, meal programs, those kind of folks, and talking a lot with uh, people with low income, so people who use those services and people who don't use those services, about what could that system look like in the future? Because we haven't really taken a, a cold, hard look at it in a long time you know food banks came around in the 80s they've kind of been with us ever since even though they were always supposed to be temporary and so it gives us a chance to take a look at you know how could that system work better how can we move towards kind of the bigger picture solutions so uh i i've, I've seen the report uh, it's going to be great there's a ton in there we got some really thoughtful stuff both out of folks with lived experience and out of food organizations who really see the need to do things differently so that'll be uh, 
uh, that'll be out pretty soon. You know, that requires a transformation in how governments operate and how they think about food as well, because you're right, food banks were a backstop. Now they've become a reality of life for four or five million Canadians, and we see and hear the numbers here in this province. So whether I refer to it as a failure in governance, I think like many areas inside the world of charity or not-for-profits or volunteerism, government has just allowed it to be a, a regular feature as opposed to knowing that they can do better. If we are continuing to simply rely on volunteerism and food banks or what have you, you back that out, government might not be able to pick up the entirety of what's left behind, but they now just see it as part of reality. And that's a real unfortunate thought process for government to take on. It is. And, and I think one of the things we're trying to think about with this report is like, what's the role of government here? Obviously, there's, you know, at the top level, government needs to make the policy changes that make it so that folks don't need food banks in the first place. But at one level down from that, how does government sit with this system? What where do they fit? Are there places where, you know, government time or dollars could make the system better? Uh, and because right now it's it's you're right. I think governments are, have been grappling a little bit with what's their role with this you know they up until covid governments really didn't touch it at all they didn't fund food programs they they weren't really engaged that changed a bit during the pandemic but the world is really different now and and we have to think about okay are there ways that the government can be a good partner in maybe making that transformation happen right and helping people carve out some space to actually like rethink how this whole work goes uh because that's really tough for the the folks who are on the ground just like solving the problems day to day right no doubt about it and you know we're the only country in the g7 that doesn't have a national school lunch program maybe that's one place to start uh in the world of proximity what's food first nl's role in dealing with municipal governments provincial government because you know we've seen an explosion in uh backyard farming and in homesteading uh steading homesteading and then of course community gardens what have you but there's technologies that can be peppered right across the province Uh, for instance inside the world of hydroponics there's some startup costs which government would have to get involved in but if we're talking about the price of fuel and how the distance you have to travel for fresh options. I'm not sure why we don't do more on that front. It's one thing for government to free up $65,000 of land for traditional agriculture, and that's important, but going the extra mile to put food closer to where you are just seems like one of the low-hanging fruit, as they say. What's your role in your organization to encourage government to be more active, whether it be municipal governments or provincial governments? There's a bunch. We were just out, myself and, and Sarah Crocker from our team, were just out at the Municipalities NL Symposium up in Gander last week doing a session with municipal leaders on just this, right? Because we see it as a few things. Uh, you know, one thing is we're, we're here as a resource. So we have a pretty detailed resource center for folks who want to start these projects. They can come to Food First and say, and we've got lots on the table for them, you know, whether it's guidebooks on how to run this kind of thing, whether it's, you know, guidance on where to find some money to do it, you know, that's, so we really encourage people to reach out to Food First uh, and use both our online resources, but also just talk to our staff. We can help kind of handhold you through that process. So that's one big piece of it. The other thing we're trying to work with, especially with municipal governments, is to do a bit, little bit of what we call community-led food assessment work. So we've seen that happen, for example, and we've supported them on the North Coast of Labrador, South Coast of the Island, and in St. John's, where people take a, have a conversation with their community about, like, okay, what are the 
what are the gaps we're seeing in access to food and how what can we do to solve them that's really the the first point uh for any especially for municipal governments because municipal governments play a really important role here right they they have a lot of community development work at that ground level and they can also i think municipal governments are a powerful voice in in speaking to the province about this stuff and in advocating to other other levels right so you know we're here as this resource and to connect people with each other to get people access to the to the funds and the and the knowledge that they that they need and and then we're also you know usually bothering the province about what the policy barriers are that are getting in the way of this stuff because there's always some of those and and there's always work to be done to to smooth out the process of of accessing food locally because there's so many sometimes unexpected bumps you run into trying to do these things well bureaucracy is you know, a titanic hurdle sometimes. Uh, Josh, really sure appreciate is. your time and what the work you do at Food First. Anything else you'd like to leave us with this morning? No, I think that's it. I just, uh, if folks are on the Northern Peninsula t- today and tomorrow, uh, check out the Food First social media for the details of our community meetings and come out, have a bite to eat, and have a chat. Appreciate the time, Josh. Good luck. Thanks, Eddie. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. That's Josh Bye. Schnee. He's the CEO at Food First. And now let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about foster care. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. I'm calling about foster care in the province. Okay. Uh, there was an article in the news with uh, Lynn Moore about uh, a foster child. Um, it was May the 6th, dated May the 6th, um, where the child was mistreated while in the care of the Department of Child, Youth, and Family Services. Uh, When a worker did finally uh, make a visit, it became obvious things weren't right and nothing was done to help the child. Uh, The child suffered uh, sexual abuse um, and witnessed her sister um, was killed while in the foster home. I'd just like to touch on the topic of traumatization and oppression and uh, the following up of uh, social workers supposed to be, uh, the mandate is supposed to be to protect the child. And if they're not investigating properly, uh, doing a proper investigation, uh, we have so many children falling through, through the cracks and uh, it, it begs the question if it's necessary for removals, many removals. Um, I do know people personally who have grown up in foster care in, in different households that were um, deprived of basic human rights. And, you know, is it, is it possible that these children should be removed? It begs to differ if these children should be removed. Uh, Like, I don't believe that a child should be removed from their home. Whatever the problem is within the home, whether a parent is on, um, I don't know, if a parent is drug addicted or alcoholism or domestic violence, like, this is where I think that children are being failed. Like, they shouldn't be took away from all family and but extended just, family. Just like, what second. does extended 
family have to do with the child being removed? At some point, though, there could be absolutely unsafe environment where the child has to be removed, must be removed. The story that you were referring to with Lynn Moore uh, and the uh, people she's representing, there was no argument that the children had to be removed from their own family home. It was a very dangerous situation, apparently, and many documented issues regarding violence in the home. Then, of course, it went through a couple of different foster homes where they suffered horrendous abuse, and the key issue for Miss Moore inside this was not only the abuse, but hiding behind a government technicality about uh, statutes of limitations for when you can seek redress. So apparently the way it works, let me see if I can drag it up here. So it was about... I mean, there's, there's First Nations in your children, uh, First Nations children being removed constantly. And, and government can say that they're not removing uh, birth alerts. It's not the case. Patty's still going on. Okay, let's stick with child the... Youth and, child Youth and Family Services are going in and just stealing children. Hold on. And that's why there's so many children in the system. And that's why... There's some, been so many deaths of children in the system. Okay, before we get to and the indigenous realities, the Miss Moore was also talking about statute of limitations. If there was sexual abuse, there is none. For physical abuse, there is. And what it says is you have two years from the time they turn 19 to file a lawsuit or 10 years after the abuse happened. So that was her main concern here, is that government is hiding behind a technicality regarding the ability for a suit to take place. That's the, that was the crux of Miss Moore's uh, issue inside of that particular story yes but it's all one big um one big um dilemma and pro uh, systemic systemic issues going on within the department of child youth and family services and you've got traumatized children who um have court ordered by a judge court orders that are supposed to get counseling and child youth and family services are denying those children uh, any counseling because the children might say oh well they want to return back with their parent so they're not getting the services that uh, of counseling uh, while they're in the system and, and like that's a violation of human rights for a child, and and to me, like uh, child youth and family services will say that oh they done an investigation, but there's no oversight over child protection, which there needs to be oversight outside of government and outside of child youth and family services because what what's going on is that there's a bias and. Child Youth and Family Services are abusing power and in a closed court system that nobody gets to see what's really occurring within the family court system. And the unions, the unions are like, they're protecting Child Youth and Family Services. And Child Youth and Family Services needs to be dismantled it needs to be child-centered, not department-centered. And there needs to be oversight. Like the, the child advocate was supposed, was looking to get subpoena power. Yeah, that would have been great because then there could have been oversight over uh, the Department of Social Workers uh, because 
you're only allowed what Child Youth and Family Services allows inside the court system, who they hire themselves to do these parenting assessments, and these parenting assessments are not accurate whatsoever. Well, I, I think, you know, every case might be different. Uh, and s- sometimes there's going to be the unfortunate reality where children have to be removed from a home. I mean, I don't believe I don't believe that they should. OK, so if a child be is being bru- if the child's being brutalized in the family home, they should just stay in that dangerous situation because of what? No, I'm not saying that, Patty. They're removing children that don't need to be removed. That okay. may happen in some cases, absolutely. I know of one lady Many. who's been... Okay. I know of one specific case where the mother has been... We've been exchanging notes for weeks here. She's in a very difficult spot here with this exact issue. Uh, anyway, final thought to you before I have to go. I mean, you got children being oppressed and not able to speak, and then that leads to traumatization, and and then... Uh, either running away or uh, later in life or drug addiction because they're not able to cope with what has happened to them. And there's no love to put in foster care, but the child is not loved by their family, by their extended family or anybody in what like why why take them from their extended family what their what did their extended family do to them and and if it's in a domestic violence situation why isn't that person that's violent why isn't that person taken or made by the court to take anger management or domestic violent courses or stuff like that which still doesn't deal with the immediacy of the concern that someone may have for a child in that situation uh i appreciate children children i I heard should grow up in their own home environment if possible one parent is probably violent and the other is not and they're still taking the children from the non-violent person In a violent home. Uh, I appreciate the time. It's an important matter. Thanks for this this morning. It's happening, Patty, and it's sad. I appreciate the call. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. All right, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking community cleanup and the big success. Enjoy it up on Happy Valley Goose Bay. Don't go away. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Jenny Ring Michelin. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Excellent today. Thank you. How about you? I'm great. Thank you. I was really pleased to read the story about the big success enjoyed over the weekend to clean up your community. But let's go back to before the cleanup was organized. What were people seeing and what was behind the town coming out with a public safety warning? Um, uh, the public safety warning for the... Um, for the cleanup, you mean? Yeah, they say there's uh, garbage, potential hazardous waste on the town's bike trail, and consequently they ask people to be careful and report any hazardous materials, which consequently, I guess, led to you and others saying, well, whether we take advantage of Tim Horton's pitch-in initiative, or we try to org- organize some businesses and get some prizes, and away you go. So tell us what happened. Um, actually, the, the town put that out after we started the cleanup. Oh, I see. Okay. Yep. So th- but they just wanted, we were, we were in uh, close coordination with the town because we wanted them to be a part they did support us 
on our efforts, but we just wanted to make sure that people were doing their areas only because they are putting out a tender for the big areas that need the cleanup so that we didn't want people to be harmed when doing doing cleanup. We wanted to stay it as, as a positive aspect. Makes sense to me. Paint us a picture of how bad it was to instigate this type of cleanup and the town's yet to be uh, work yet to be done. Uh, well, I think there was just a lot of garbage. It was a, a lot of <clears throat> a lot needed to be done in a large area. It's not completed. Um, we we did take a good dent in it, but I think it was a way for the community to take part and be able to do something um, to make a difference. And so I think that's why it was it, it caught on so quickly because um, everybody doing a little bit it, it made a thing. I do want to stress that we do need support in maintaining our efforts. Um, we worked really hard and we're planning to follow up cleanup campaign and security plays a role in that. So I hope the town works with us closely um, continuing the efforts to maintain it. What do you mean by that security required? Well, I think that we need security in our town and in order um, right now we don't have um, we had a town cop last last summer and there's there's nobody to enforce the bylaws of the town, like for littering, for um, covers on your trucks, things like that on, on maintaining the security in the, in the town limits. Yeah, because of course we've spoken with the mayor and others uh, regarding what would be the transient population and the homelessness on the trails and some of the loitering and illegal activity and the fact that folks simply don't feel safe in their own community. Is that a fair way to put it? Uh, yeah, it, it really is. And we have beautiful neighborhoods and trails. We want to be able to enjoy them. The outdoor spaces that are here, we want them clean and safe and welcoming for people to be able to use. And I think people doing taking their part and, and going as far as they did in those four short days is incredible. You know, it's one thing to clean the place up and to qualify for a prize, a prize, which I think is a nice incentive, a nice character to dangle, but it does come with a sense of community pride. So whether it be in the weeks and days past, they're thinking that, you know, so many children are feeling unsafe or parents don't want to let their kids just go out and roam around freely because of some of the potential problems out there, but you get together, do something like this, it gives you an opportunity to enjoy some positivity, in, but it can be some trying circumstances in Happy Valley Goose Bay. So talk about that facet of what it meant for a bit of community pride? Um, I think that it was right from the little kids. Uh, there were so many children out doing their part, and they were like, uh, they, it was amazing to see. It, it put smiles on the face, faces of, of everyone, young and old. And, I mean, keeping our town clean is important. It's a step, and it's crucial to the mental and physical wellness of people to be able to not have to look at garbage and, and beer cans and everything else that, that is littered in a, in our streets, or was littered, I should say. So you said you made a dent. Give us an idea what kind of dent you think you made. Oh, just driving up and down the streets, you can see the dent that it's made. But, I mean, we didn't get all the parts. Um, we uh, we have been in contact and, and talking to the town on saying that we would like more garbage cans. Um, that was a huge response that we got from, from people in the community, that they want garbage cans, and people from the town to maintain those garbage cans. We um, People also had suggestions of... Um, doggy poop stations because uh, you wouldn't believe the people actually pick up their dog doo-doo and they put it in the bag and then the bag gets thrown to the edge of the 
the the line. So um, we'd like to see all of that, and those are our efforts that we're trying to move forward with to get to get done to make it a better and easier way to keep the streets clean. Uh, bravo to you and whoever was involved in the cleanup and the 70 businesses that got involved. And the dog do issue is absolutely everywhere. That's one thing that the spring and the snow receding reveals, certainly in and around my neighborhood. And I've always been astonished that someone would be willing to bring a bag with them, pick up after their dog, and then just throw the bag on the ground. <laughs> Yeah, I thought it was thought it was odd as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, when's the next cleanup scheduled? Um, we're not sure when the next cleanup scheduled. Hopefully, if we can maintain and keep keep a, a thing going, we're looking at uh, maybe starting a program with the kids because the kids were so involved to um, adopt a street and be a street sweeper, and they could win prizes weekly if they looked after their street and kept their garbage off of the street, then they, they could win a prize. We're looking at doing something like that. So if we could maintain and keep the momentum up, maybe we won't have to do such big initiatives. Sounds great. Uh, if you have one more second, I just want to ask you a question about your own professional world. And your manager, operator, Jungle Gyms, and at the Mariners Gallery, or Galley, it's been tough time in that industry how's it working out for your operations um we're bouncing back it's nice to see we're hoping to see some tourism with the road this year uh well some more tourism with the road being paved this year and people coming through so so it's a waiting game but it is picking up it's great to see people out and about uh, i'm glad to hear that i appreciate your time this morning jenny thank you thank you patty you have a great day you too bye-bye it's jenny ring michelin one of the organizers of the community cleanup happy valley goose bay good stuff let's go to line number one say good morning to the progressive conservative member of the house of assembly elected in serving the folks at stephenville port of port that's tony wakeham tony you're on the air hey good morning patty i just wanted to call in and uh talk about the fishery for a couple of minutes i don't have to tell you how important this is to the uh, people in newfoundland and labrador it is disappointing, though, to uh, see that the Premier decided to attend a conference rather than stay here in the province and deal with this issue. Now, some may say that the Premier doesn't control the harvesters or the Premier doesn't control the processors, and he certainly doesn't control the price. We all understand, but, but he is the Premier. He is the CEO of this province. And at a critical time in our fishery, I don't believe there's any excuse for that CEO, that Premier, not to be here, finding a way to continue to keep these parties talking because the, every single day that goes by that their crab isn't being harvested, we have a problem. We have a huge problem in our fishery. We have a problem. We've had a problem with lobsters. They're back fishing. That's good news. But we have to get this issue solved before the season starts. And the Premier has a role to play in that. You know, it's not about winners here because right now there are no winners. Everyone is losing. The harvesters are losing. The plant workers are losing. The crews are losing. The processors are losing. I would argue communities are losing. And as a result of that, there's a significant economic blow to the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. As I travel around this province now, people are waiting, are anxious. They're not purchasing. They're concerned about their jobs. You've heard the stories in the news about truck companies laying off truckers because they're not moving. So there has to be there has to be a way to get this to get this moving, and it has to be a way of dealing with with both of these critical fisheries. The lobster and the crab bring significant amount of monies 
not only to the individuals involved in the industry, but all the, to all the spin-offs, and I would argue even to government at the end of the day, because get, government gets the benefit of the taxation piece. So that's the piece. It has to be, people have to be talking, and we have to find a way. We know markets will go up and down, but that whole fairness principle has to come in there. We have to find a way. We don't expect harvesters to lose money fishing. We don't expect processors to lose money processing. But there has to be that balance struck. And I believe there's a role for the, for the, for the premier, for the government to play in that. Yeah, I, I don't deny there's a role. I just haven't been able to figure out exactly what that role should be realistically. Fair enough. I mean, Minister Bragg, he took a stab at it by suggesting that they conduct a secret ballot to see who would be willing to fish, just to paint a clearer picture, because not every enterprise is uh, created equally. And, of course, the FFAW thought that would undermine their leadership and consequently said they would not do that. I just wonder exactly what I would expect our government here. People have gone all the way to saying, well, you know, money. We can subsidize it this year because it's a down year. But my goodness, the Pandora's box that would create, because what happens if there's a, a different season with a different species, and this has been a precedent set, so I don't think government should do anything like that. So other than encourage was, I think, the word you used. What do you think government can or well, should do here? Well, I believe that there are things that are suggestions that have been made, but, you know, perhaps an all-party committee, the House should be struck. And I don't mean a committee that takes years and years and years. I mean a committee, a, a small committee that, that sits down and becomes part of this because it's not about a political party. It's not about blame. It's about finding solutions, short-term, long-term solutions. There have been lots of things talked about. There's been talk about outside buyers and in the crab and, and the lobster. There's been talk about co-ops, allowing uh, harvesters to form their own co-op. Uh, so there's been lots of suggestions on both sides. But what I'm not seeing is how do we take the suggestions of people that are involved in the industry on both sides and really sit down and hammer them out because we know that the price will fluctuate. It will continue to fluctuate. And in times when the prices are higher, then maybe this take it or leave it approach, this arbitration of take it or leave it may be okay. But when the price drops to the point where it becomes critical and people are really struggling to whether or not how much uh, money or are they actually going to lose money, then, you know, that's when that type of a formula perhaps doesn't work as well as it might have worked before. So I believe there has to be some kind of way of getting everybody at the table, and perhaps if the premier's there, he can sit in the middle. He can have them both in two different rooms, but taking the ideas, taking this type of, and, and go talk to a harvester, go talk to a processor, go talk to a plant worker, but we have to find a way to, to come up with something different than what we've always done, because it seems like we're back at this every single year. And what's really concerning to me now as well is, you know, nobody is talking yet about the mackerel fishery or the capelin fishery. You know, our plant workers depend on those fisheries as well. The mackerel fishery was canceled last year by the federal government, yeah. despite the fact that the United States kept fishing in the same stock. And now we're hearing rumors about our capelin fishery, and not a peep about those. And those are critical. We cannot afford to have the mackerel fishery closed this year. We cannot afford to have the capelin fishery closed this year. And I think it's the onus. That's where you know the premier needs to be there. He's the CEO. We got to get this stuff 
on the radar yeah. by the federal whether not, minister, the prime minister. Yeah, whether or not we fish the, the, the mackerel, we actually talked to him about it with Clifford Small earlier, earlier this morning. But and you mentioned plant workers, and so there's some 5,000 plant workers apparently uh, that are you know on the sidelines, kind of waiting to see what'll happen here. Now, not on every species, but specifically with snow crab, is. Outside buyers, I've long thought that we don't get enough for the raw material, much different than every other industry on the face of the earth, but also inside that world. Outside buyers, if they were a feature on every wharf where the offloading takes place, what would that mean for the processing sector and the plant workers therein? I think that's part of the conversation that hasn't been fully fleshed out because it will have some implication, I would suggest, uh, on the processing sector here, which is, you know, dovetails with the harvesters. You kind you kind of need both to be active and profitable at the same time. And then the issue with how the price is set. You know, it was once simply about the price itself. Now I think the FAAW have kind of changed their messaging a little bit to talk about harvesters getting a bigger market share of the 220 versus thinking that 220 can be an increased number. So they're kind of two different things. They're in the same world or the same church, different pews. Yeah, and that's why I talk about the fairness principle here. And, and you're absolutely right when we talk about all these ideas. But until you flush them out thoroughly, thoroughly flush it out, you can't simply turn around and say, you know, wave a wand and say, yes, we're doing this or doing that. Too many times in the past, those those, those things have resulted in worse uh, decisions. You really need to flush this out. Perhaps that's the role of an all-party committee could be to, to meet with the harvesters, to meet with the processors, and come up with something that that's not politically motivated. This fishing industry has been around for 500 years. It's what brought my ancestors to this province, and it brought a lot many more. And all you have to do is go all around Newfoundland and Labrador today and realize how important this is, not only the economy of rural Newfoundland, but the importance of the economy of urban. Uh, very quickly, well, I mean, St. John's is the biggest bay in Newfoundland when we talk about the offloading of seafood. Uh, last one, and you mentioned the Premier decided to go to a conference. Of course, that's the World Hydrogen Summit where the province signed an MOU with the Port of Rotterdam. It really feels like the province is in. We're in on the hydrogen game. If not, we wouldn't probably be taking these initiatives or efforts or summits or whatever the case may be. How do you read it? Well, you know, that's uh, any time we have an opportunity to develop resources and uh, new resources, you know, we certainly have to explore all those options. But again, I go back to what I have always said. Every time we go down this path, it should be about minimizing impacts on our environment and maximizing our benefits. Because doing all of these things, if it doesn't benefit, if the Newfoundland and Labrador is not the principal beneficiary of these, these industries, then we shouldn't be doing them. Appreciate the time, Tony. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Take care. It's Tony Wakem. He's the PC member for Stephenville Port of Port. All right, just saw an email float in and caught it in the corner of my eye talking about cell phones and mobile data packages. So apparently, uh, let's see here. Mobile data in Canada is 26 times more expensive than it is in France. It's the, we are the 19th most expensive country in the world for mobile data prices. Uh, nationally, Saskatchewanians pay the least for their mobile data. It's long been a conversation. And just recently, the big three have uh, upped their roaming charges. So be careful if you are planning to travel that you've got the right package in play because the roaming charges can be really quite exorbitant. Let's take a break. When we come back, tons of time for you. Don't go away. 
Welcome back to the show. Well, I guess a frustrated supporter of the provincial government asked me why I, uh, why I feel the need to say that it looks like and sounds like the province is already all in on hydrogen. Well, because it kind of appears that way, doesn't it? How else do you think that we can view, whether it be attending the World Summit and the MOUs that have been signed on to, whether it be with Germany or the Port of Rotterdam? And in fact, the province has said quite clearly that Europe is a key export market for Newfoundland and Labrador's hydrogen. That's the government saying it, not me saying it. That came directly from the minister and the premier himself. So if we are talking about Newfoundland and Labrador's hydrogen, it kind of means, or sure sounds like, that they've got approvals in mind for one project or another. I think the one that, of course, gets all the pushback and most of the negative reaction is World Energy GH2 on the Port of Port Peninsula. And it's probably the one that's probably got the best opportunity to come up with the capital to get it off the ground. We're talking about a $12 billion project. And of course, look, we had uh, Helen Forsey from the Council of Canadians on yesterday talking about environmental impact and the numbers of people. We don't know how many people are uh, supportive or opposed to that particular project and its 164 offshore-sized windmills. But yeah, this is not... You know, of course, we will opine and surmise based on what we hear, what we see about what governments, uh, what government lane they're going to pick. And on this one, if they say that Europe is a key export for our hydrogen, then that kind of feels like that's something that the government is absolutely bullish on. Now, we'll see what the timeline looks for eventual or final approvals. I would imagine it's not too far down the road. We'll hear something or other. But then, of course, as we've mentioned in the past, the fire brand that is John Risley has really brought some keen focus on his project and his company versus other parts of the province. We've only heard some specifics from a couple of different areas, the Port of Argentia and the area in Botwood, for instance, uh, the Exploits Group. Those areas, they're really in. Well, at least municipal leadership in some of those communities, specifically Botwood, which would be the hub, they hope, they're crossing their fingers that it actually comes to pass where they live. So there's a, I guess, where you stand depends where you sit, but this is not me trying to get out over my skis on the hydrogen issue, basically just picking up what the government is laying down on that front because it seems quite clear to me, but anyway... If you want to take it on from any angle, we're happy to do exactly that. And yes, as mentioned from the first call this morning, regarding subsidy of wages for people who are newcomers, regardless where you come from, and this is provincial money, it's not federal money, uh, and this is regarding uh, wage subsidies. And I got the numbers, and someone said, well, why didn't you give the numbers out? But I did. I'll do it again. So inside a program called Jobs and L42, it says that there's a bunch of eligibility issues that have to be set. Then the subsidies intend to offset salary costs to create new positions, also part of the conversation. It says for the first 14 weeks of employment, a 60% subsidy to a maximum of $12 towards the hourly wage rate. In the second 14 weeks, zero subsidy towards wages. In the third 14 weeks, it ju jumps to an 80% subsidy to a maximum, once again, of $12 towards the hourly wage rate. So those are the numbers as per the description here. And in addition to that Ukrainian-based conversation, with the fast-tracking that they were able to achieve for Ukrainian refugees, some of the regular supports that are in place from the federal government in particular were not put in place. So this is one area where some employers are taking advantage of it and hiring newcomers, such as Jim's son, who did not get the job. Okay. Also, 
asking if I can share some of the pictures or stories that I'm getting from families who have uh, family members who are students or staff at Frank Roberts Junior High. I went back to a couple of them and said, do you mind if I share them, whether it be on social media or otherwise? And they just want me to keep their name out of it. And one lady in particular says, please don't share. I just did it privately with you. But if you look around social media, there seems to be some people are willing to share some of their stories and some of the photographs from inside that school. And it seems like a pretty serious situation. The question I would have is, yes, some public buildings and, yes, some private, privately owned buildings may indeed see rodents this time of year. It's pretty standard stuff, but it depends on the extent of what you're seeing. So the question I would have is, at what point does it become simply unhealthy or unsafe to be in some of these buildings, whether it be because of rodents, whether it be because of rodent droppings, whether it be because of mold and other pictures that we've seen that paint a very unhealthy, unsafe picture. The province says they're not interested in doing anything with, that's not the right way to put it. At this moment in time, there will be no further attention or remediation or processes in place for Frank Roberts Jr. High. And there is indeed $127 million in the most recent budget regarding inf education infrastructure. And again, one more time, those are for schools and Cartwright, Portugal Cove St. Phillips, Ken Mount Terrace, and as well as a redevelopment of the school in Pelees Island. All right, let's check in on the Twitter box. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Follow us there. Oh, also, there's a story that we can and should be talking about regarding international relationships, and this is the AU, AUK-US Defense Pact. That's Australia, the United States, and the United Kingdom. They have joined forces for this new approach to a trilateral, trilateral defense pact. Canada has been snubbed. There's no indication that we've been invited to be part of it. Apparently, through reading whatever I can get my hands and eyes on, that one cause of this particular snub, and this came from a former Australian Prime Minister, Canada said to this group they were unwilling to adopt nuclear subs, and as a result, they were left out of the equation. So yes, we are not at the table with some of our very key allies, ex uh, certainly including the United States of America, the United Kingdom, and yes, Australia, but we've been uh, left outside of that table, not even a seat at the kids' table on that front. And that's a topic we can take up right after this newscast. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. As we mentioned off the top of the show, you know, some of the great concepts that have been brought to bear really aren't backed up, you know, for instance, inside of the world of child care. Now, it was the federal government that brought forward the $10 a day issue, not the province. We joined on and signed a bilateral agreement for federal funding on that front. But the fact of the matter is, it's simply not working for far too many families, especially the parents of toddlers. Apparently, that's the one sticky area where it's hard to find a space. But I made reference to the fact that, you know, did we do the prep to accommodate what would be a surge in people looking for daycare when it was at $10 a day? So this report coming from the Child Care Resource and Research Unit. They're a not-for-profit research institute based in Toronto. They're talking about the path towards high-quality and equitable child care. Then they talk about the number of regulated childcare spaces, and in this province, 14% of children under the age of 12 have access to a space. The national average is 29%, so we've got a long way to go. My assertion was, based on the fact that these numbers are from 2021, I don't know what it looks like today. Robin on Twitter said, I think that possibly it had maybe improved around the path to improving with the early childhood pay grade and the possibility to add 700 seats at the College of North Atlantic's early childhood education. But 
Robin suggests that there's been so many that have probably left and are never coming back based on some of the daycare closures that happened during the pandemic. So she could be right. I don't know what the current numbers look like, but I do know that if you are a young family and looking for to check off some boxes as to whether or not this is a problem, say you want to set down your roots as a young family and to stay long term, no question, affordable, accessible childcare will be part of the equation. And if they're having a hard time and people who are contacting me, this one woman in particular, she's in her first trimester of her pregnancy and has already put her name on a wait list for childcare. So the concept there is, you know, in the neighborhood of I guess what, six, uh, 18 months from now, at the earliest, when she'd need a spot, she's even worried that in 18 months she won't be able to get her child into a daycare close by where she lives. So again, it does make a difference about the prep work to be part of a successful plan to be rolled out. And I think the same thing we've tried to associate with some of the conversations and the to and fro in the House of Assembly yesterday regarding newcomers and refugees, Ukrainians or otherwise. So I don't think it's unfair for anybody to say, were we really prepared? Now, there was some immediacy associated with Ukrainian refugees. People understand that. But if 2,700 have come, and that was the first flight of Ukrainians happened yesterday, one year ago, from yesterday and if 600 are working and 600 are looking and the one family interviewed for the story there was the husband the wife and their four children in a hotel room since december so it's fine to be and this one fella he's working he's working as a cabinet maker but he cannot get a job that pays enough to find adequate housing you know even if something as fundamentally says is to get back to some normalcy even just have a kitchen table where they can sit around and eat together in that type of setting versus someone sitting on the bed, someone sitting at the desk, or sitting on the floor and eating in the hotel room where they've been ever since they arrived. Then the government has indeed implemented what they're calling a 45-day temporary accommodations policy. So now Ukrainian immigrants have a limited amount of time they can stay in a hotel. The province does go on to say that if you get past 45 days, you can apply for an exemption. But this issue... Before the Russians invaded Ukraine, there was a developing housing crunch, not just in the metro region, but right across the country. And so knowing that's the reality, is it not incumbent on government to be prepared for all eventualities, for things that are right there in front of us, things we can see that are happening? Housing being a primary concern, not just the explosion in the price of rent or to get into your own home and some of the restrictions to qualify for a mortgage. And then, yes, the other one that people rightfully point to is access to health care. If the numbers, and it's hard to understand exactly what the numbers may indeed be here, whether it be with vacancies for one discipline or another, or how many people in the province don't have a family doctor, I was pretty surprised that we had all of these incentives and comprehensive suites of programs brought forward to try to make it easier, and collaborative care clinics and all the rest of it, and we went from 125,000 people without a family doctor all the way to 136,000 in very short order. So, again... It doesn't make you a bad person to ask these questions out loud. It doesn't mean that you don't see the upside of immigration necessarily. But when we have a housing issue and a health care issue, I think the questions are fair. And again, no flipping switches in childcare, no flipping switches in immigration and or housing or health care issues. But we had to proceed knowing that this was going to be a possible problem. And now 
all these months later, it seems like it is exactly that. And actually, I just mentioned Robin, and I didn't use her surname uh, in my commentary, but it was Robin LeGrow that uh, offered her perspective on where we think the reality is for access to a regulated childcare space for children under the age of 12. She seems to think it's gotten worse. And we'll hear her thoughts on line number one. Good morning, Robin. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I figured I would add some context to my tweet to you this morning. Um, And I've had the opportunity to work with Martha Friendly, who is the author of the report, um, a a fair bit, actually, over the last decade. Um, And she's a wealth of knowledge. She and a a few others um, are the architects of what we are now moving into in terms of policy around child care. But they've been asking for it for like 30 years. Um, So... (sighs) In 2013, the Jimmy Pratt Foundation put out a a discussion paper, and basically it was formed from conversations with providers of um, uh, child care, um, with government uh, staff who are working in the child care field, and then with mothers as well. Uh, And so we did this review and looked at... um, basically the state of childcare in Newfoundland and then looked beyond to see what was happening in other parts of Canada and lessons that we could take that up from what was happening there to what we were doing here. So that was 2013. Um, and so that paper brought up three recommendations. It brought up um, one, we asked for full day kindergarten because that would eliminate a lot of the, you know, f- uh, five-year-olds that were doing half days uh, in childcare, that would eliminate that and put them in school. So that would take out a number of children. So we got full day kindergarten. And and also, when I talk about this, uh, I, we did all this work because of the benefits that come with uh, early interventions that happen in an early childhood uh, setting. So, uh, you know, we might call them childcare or daycare, but in actuality, what the policy is designed for is for early childhood education. And so that's the problem we're experiencing now. Newfoundland was operating under a daycare slash childcare model for the longest time. It was uh, operated by publicly owned operators who received subsidies and grants uh, with basically no accountability or expectations of what they were doing with that money um, and no regulation around what they charged or, uh, you know, quality um, standards or any of that stuff. And, and it also affected their ability to, um, you know, create an infrastructure of early childhood educators, which would, you know, strengthen the profession uh, for, you know, a female-dominated sector. So we asked for full-day kinder. We asked for, they had a child care strategy that they had developed in, like, 2010. We asked them to fast-track that. So it was a 10-year child care strategy. We said, get it done now. Uh, and that was about implementing the operation grant that they had going um, and then opening up different opportunities with the family uh, the family resource centers and the, the in-home uh, day child care. Um, and then we asked them to um, create sorry, integrated governance. So at the time, uh, the responsibilities for child care were split between um, the Department of Education and uh, the Department of Senior, uh, C- Children, Seniors, and Youth Services, or whatever. It's changed names so That's many right. times. That's yeah. Um, so we asked for them to uh, all child care services to be brought under one roof and integrated into the Department of Education so that people would start looking at child care as an educational um, opportunity, which it is, um, as well as, um, as you know, strengthen um, 
solidify the policy decisions and make sure they were all happening under one roof. So they integrated the two departments. But what they didn't do is they didn't integrate them um, outside of putting it on paper. So the idea of integration was to bring the director of early childhood education into all the meetings with the K-12 service and figure out ways that we can create synergies, how they can work together, how we can streamline, you know, um, opportunities, uh, you know, for after after school care. How do we bring child care into the schools so that it's a seamless transition for parents who might have a toddler and a child in, in elementary school? But the other thing we were pushed pushing at the same time is other uh, alternate forms of childcare that go beyond the nine to five working day. Just one and second so before we go any further. Did you just sure. say to have uh, children who are not of school age to be part of school after school programs? Yes, but uh, no, they would be part of childcare offerings located within a school. Okay. Right. So the concept being that, um, you know, uh, creating a community school within our elementary schools. So, you know, bringing, uh, we actually, <laughs> speaking of MOUs, we actually had an MOU pretty much ready to be signed between the Margaret and Wallace McCain Foundation and Jimmy Pratt Foundation and the government and MUN, looking at how we could uh, develop these two uh, demonstration sites, one rural, one urban, where we would have um, a researcher at MUN, a position that we would fund at MUN, uh, a PhD uh, position for early childhood education, because we were bringing in full-day kindergarten, and we had kindergarten teachers who were going to be teaching it with play-based learning, but we weren't teaching play-based learning in education degree program at MUN. So we're trying to bring all these pieces together that were, were not fitting. And we never got that MOU signed. It took I don't know, eight months of going back and forth and changing this word and that word and dealing with, you know, a deputy minister changing or moving. And so we never got that MOU signed because the government changed and then, you know, everything changes then. So um, this has been in the works for a long time. They have been given a roadmap. Um, every year, if you look um, at, uh, there's a report, the Early Childhood Education Report comes out every year um, out of the University of Toronto, the uh, Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, OISE, and, you know, they will work with provinces to help them develop these programs. One of the main problems we're seeing now is that um, we are still allowed to have for-profit centres. And for-profit centers are always going to be focused on the bottom line. So we are now publicly funding uh, private businesses to offer a service. And those are the ones you're hearing about in terms of operators uh, because they're now being given less money to provide the same services to children that they were before. And so they've had to cut back. Um, and so that's why you're now hearing about, oh, well, we can no longer take children with exceptionalities because we don't have, we can't, you know, we can't manage it. They must come with a helper. It's because these private operators and, you know, if I ran a private business, I'd be doing the same thing. So I, I'm not, I'm not saying, uh, claiming they're bad, but I'm saying the way the system is set up, um, it makes it difficult for um, true change to happen in the system when you're still allowing these old-fashioned forms of, of operation and you're only changing certain parts of the system. 
So government knew that we would not have enough early childhood educators. We have been um, looking at opportunities to develop uh, educational opportunities for early childhood educators by, you know, we developed um, a two plus two uh, degree program at Mount Allison all online. So someone with a, an early childhood education level two could continue to work, but also do studies online to get a level three or level four. That was, I don't know, eight years ago. We have been asking for this stuff for a long time. And the problem is, is that once that decision was made to go all in on $10 a day, well, it started at 15, but then $10, you know, affordability is just one of three pieces that are required for a well-working childcare system. Affordability, accessibility, and quality. So those are three things that we look for, and you can't have one without the other. And so while government is totally focused on affordability, and that's awesome, in doing so, they've created a, a more broken system because they've completely left out the needs uh, for accessibility and quality. Yeah, I mean... What are some of the short-term solutions? Because it's fine to talk about a new pay grid for ECEs. It's fine to talk about 700 more seats at the College of the North Atlantic, which does very little for the immediacy now. I think one thing, and I, I mean, I think everyone would agree that we need a professionally trained early childhood educator uh, staff throughout the yeah. entirety of, of, of daycare or childcare, early childhood education. But the Absolutely. changes that were made where they all had to get their level one and they got a five-year grace period to do it and there was support financially come from the government but one thing i think there we've seen some successes in the k-12 system is to allow retired teachers to get back involved without jeopardizing their pension i think if we made that one move we could probably alleviate some concerns on the inclusion worker front so that we can start dealing with the exceptionalities piece while we're concurrently trying to deal with you know creating more access and a better trained staff so there's a couple of little things i think that are right there for the taking that i'm not sure why we're not doing it Well, me too. And it's because we're approaching it like in a very piecemeal way, right? And so we're not looking at the overall strategy and, you know, developing outcomes and strategies to meet those outcomes. And if that was done, you know, we would have approached affordability, accessibility at the same time. We would have taken on the fact that 75% of our our childcare operators are private. We have the largest amount of private operators in the country by a lot. I think that PEI might have 10%. Um, you know, uh, Nova Scotia has been drastically working on, you know, bringing in uh, publicly funded not-for-profit uh, childcare operators and providing incentives for them to do that. So that's an area that we're really missing here. Um, and as well as considering different types of training opportunities or work terms that can get uh, ECEs that are already or, or people who are already in the, the program to get to develop some hands-on experience through you know, perhaps like a co not a co-op but like a you know like the MUN business does you know like a work term type thing where they get in the classroom they get in the, the child care and they start practicing and that will get more bodies there which will allow the ratios um, to meet but Back to the toddler issue, um, so the, the ratio of, of ch- ECE to child um, changes when a child reaches two. So I think you need one CE for one ECE for 
say, two or three kids when they're under two, but you can have one for four or five when they're over two. And so because of that, it has not – it's become financially uh, – in, like not feasible uh, for an operator to take in children under the age of two. Sure. I thought the and ratio so, was one early childhood educator for uh, eight children over the age of two. Yeah, I think I think it, you, you might be right, but I think it depends on like the size of the child care and like the operator, like there's a, and what the level of certification, like that's all changed since I kind of got out of that area. Um, but yeah, so there, but it's a lot, it's, it's not enough to be able to provide the oversight that children need. The benefit of providing quality early childhood education to all children in the same way is that by the time they reach school age, um, if any of them are growing up in homes that uh, don't have the right environment to develop social and emotional skills, uh, which teach us how to get along with each other and respect each other, um, we're not going to, there's no other opportunity to, to develop them because by the time they're five, it's really hard. Like you want, you know, the brain develops 90% between zero and five. So you really want to get those experiences in young. So just getting them access to that type of environment would improve our situation in our K to 12 schools dramatically. No argument here. You know, it's just important to get this right, and it might be a bit of a beating of a dead horse, but, you know, the good plans, the headline grabbers of $10 a day require so much legwork and preparation, of which has been ongoing for years. I don't know why we haven't been more attentive to it, because the day was coming as to when the country or the province was going to deal with affordability inside of daycare, but we didn't seem to put in the required effort to be prepared for it to be an actual manageable, workable good idea. No, it was uh, the reason we moved to, to $10 a day so fast, because we went to 15 and then months later we were at 10. Um, and we should have stopped at 15. We should have stopped at 15 and then focused on the quality and the accessibility part. But no, we had to go to 10. And again, that's a political decision. If you ask any, any bureaucrat in the Department of Early Childhood Education, you know, Early Childhood Development uh, in Education Department, um, they would have not, this is not what they would have recommended. This has made their lives, I can't even imagine, I can't even imagine how difficult it's made them because now, I mean, and the childcare sector is not happy. They have their wage grid, but it's still full of flaws. And there's no way for them, like they don't have a, a union, they don't have, like they have an association, but the association is, you know, like many associations right now, um, working, relying on government funding. And if you don't speak kindly, uh, about government, your funding's put at risk. So a lot of the associations and the ECEs are in a position where they can't really say much. And it, it's sad. It's sad because these people, these early childhood educators, are responsible for raising our children. And, you know, we, we, learned, we realized how important they were to us when COVID hit. Because out of everything, they were one of the, one of the sectors that had to go to work. And so even now, uh, we recognize them back in. We put back then we put, uh, you know, things in place to support them. But that's only when we needed them desperately. Um, they've been left out of they've been left out of consultations. They've been left out of uh, decision making. And it, it's unfortunate now that they're paying the price. And the children are, too, and families. I was going to say, and especially the children and families. I appreciate yeah. the time, Robin. Thanks a lot. 
No problem. Take Thanks. care. All right. You're welcome. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take that break. Uh, when we come back, plenty of time for you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. I'm not going to get a caller on here before the 11.30 news, but did you get your alert ready, emergency alert? So the CRTC is obligated twice a year to send out these alerts. And of course, this is National Emergency Preparedness Week. So interestingly, every province in the country, residents get these alerts, except if you're living in Alberta or Quebec. Why that is, I have no earthly idea. If you did not get it, there's a way to check online whether or not your mobile device is uh, set up to receive these emergency alerts. It does give people a fright. I was speaking to one of my colleagues here in the hallway, and he said that he did not know it was coming today. And so when the alert popped into his his phone this morning, which happened at 1055 local, it did bring into my phone, is that he thought there was an actual emergency. So it was just a test. And once again, they require wireless services and the uh, providers, broadcasters, to send this out. Generally speaking, it's uh, during this month and then once more, one more time in November. So if you did not get it on your phone, there is a way to go to Alert Ready. Just to Google up Alert Ready Canada. It should bring you to a website to see if your unit is compatible. All right, today might be a good day to join us on the show. So during the newscast, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Uh, welcome back to the show. We were just talking to Robin about childcare, and some of the conversation included the ratio of children to early childhood educators. A childcare worker sent me an email with the ratio numbers. The ratio for children under the age of two is one early childhood educator for three children. Children ages two to three is one early childhood educator for five children. Children three to school age, one ECE for every eight children. So appreciate that information from a childcare worker who would know more, much more about it than me. Also, when I made mention of the fact that we weren't going to be invited or involved in the Trilateral Defense Pact, the United States, the UK, and Australia, and of course, all of a sudden in the recent past, defense spending has become all the rage, right? You know, whether it be hitting 2% of GDP regarding our commitments to NATO, which we didn't hit, we haven't hit, and the federal government has recently said we will not be hitting. But add into that envelope, you know... I don't know. I guess some of this might be politically driven. And yes, some defense spending required, especially when we're talking about the, uh, the, the North. But if the issue, and this comes directly from a former Australian prime minister, is that this all stems from a fact that Canada was not willing to get involved in purchasing nuclear submarines. Australia is involved, and at this moment in time, the price tag for their purchasing of nuclear subs, I can't remember how many it was, is $325 billion. So if that's something that Canadians think is important to get involved with, fair enough, and you can let me know what you think about it. But remember, it's not that long ago that after years of dragging our feet regarding replacing our fighter jet squadron, we do indeed have it now. And so the, pro- the country, pardon me, has committed to buy 88 F-35 stealth fighter jets that totals about $14.2 billion. And when that was announced, then, of course, there was some pushback here about, you know, whether or not there was a need, and there probably is a need to replace our aging fleet. So that price tag got people up in arms. Imagine what the country would have thought or said if, given our financial situation, we were talking about hundreds of billions of dollars for nuclear subs. It might be the right thing to do. I don't know. The last subs we bought, we bought them used. We bought them from Britain, and they were used, and they've proven to be less than reliable. So those are some numbers to consider. So if it's simply all about 
uh, hitting 2% with our NATO commitment. I'm not sure how many, I think about 31 or 32 countries now are NATO members, how many of them actually have hit the 2% target, but if that's a conversation you want to have on the air, all you have to do is pick up the phone. Let's go to line number one. Gord, you're on the air. How you doing, Benny? That's kind. How about you? Uh, for a bike ride, I picked up a license plate, Hotel X-Ray Tango, separation 634. It's good till November 23. And uh, whoever owns it, they can, you know, well, they can call your station, take my number and uh, call me and I'll give it to them. I don't want to go on another vehicle. We have another idiot driver on the road. Yeah, no worries. If uh, someone is missing their license plate, I wonder how that ended up off the vehicle. Feels like someone might have stolen it. No, uh, by the looks of it, uh, I think with the, the screws that held it on, uh, it didn't work. Okay, so it was just loosely secured in the first place. Yeah, funny, I suppose it flapped off like anyone else do. We got four screws into it, and every one of the license plates I know, and all the cars only got two. Okay, fair enough. So give us the uh, the numbers on the plate one more time. Okay, we'll, we'll go HXT Hotel X-Ray Tango, separation 634. And it's good. Registration stickers to November this year. Of 2023. And the only sticker that matches, every sticker that you got on the car matches your license plate. That's how the police can know that you got a false plate. Absolutely. Yeah. Appreciate so this, Gord. Just call you guys. I will walk out and give it to him where he's at. Appreciate the time. Thanks for this. We got your number. Thank you very much, Patty, and good show. Thanks, man. Take care. Bye. Right, bye-bye. And on the conversation regarding license plates, is the thought is that you should get a plate when you first apply for a, one because you bought a, a newer used car, that you should keep it forever, right? It stays with you. That's your plate, which could alleviate some of the issues that we deal with here all the time. And then, you know, talking about plates, when the province is entertaining a... Uh, pilot project for speed cameras, red light cameras, maybe even some cameras on school buses, you know, there might be the need to all of a sudden introduce front plates because I think that's how it basically works in other jurisdictions. Not to say the technology can't keep up with simply relying on taking a picture of your rear plate as you pass by one speed detection zone with the camera. It's remarkable to me that so many people are opposed to it. You know, maybe it's just because I live in a very congested motoring area where the reckless, aggressive driving is just nonstop and maybe a surefire way to slow people down is so they can get busted with a speed trap. And a camera takes a picture, you get a ticket in the mail, and you go from there. Whether or not it was you driving it, I guess if it's your car, it's up to you to uh, understand who you're loaning it to and for them to be responsible and negotiate that with that person to make the payment. I don't know. Anyway, let's keep going here. Let's go to line number two. Dave, you're on the air. Good day, Patty. How are you? Excellent. How about you? Not too bad at all, sir. Good. Just listen to your show and enjoying it as usual. Thank you. Just, and this morning, I uh, I noticed something that, that was uh, a VOCM story this morning regarding the signing of an MOU between the provincial government and the Port of Rotterdam in the in the uh, auspices of, of being moving forward with a, a hydrogen supplier and a hydrogen receiver for European markets. And I think it speaks very, very well for the hydrogen movement in this province, not just here in our region, but also with all of the possibilities of the hydrogen projects that are going to affect so much of our island. 
I can't help but say that I see it as a very positive move forward towards a bludgeoning industry that is imminent to happen. I don't think there's any question that it's going to happen right across this country. And it's nice to see that the possibility of something big for a change, something that's linked to longevity, that won't have a shelf life like oil exploration and I guess our efforts to see to it that by 2035, everybody's driving electric cars, and of course, there would not be as much demand for petro products, which I seriously doubt myself. I think there's a long ways off of that. But it shows that the province is dabbling into the the industries that are, you know, that are in their infancy stage, and have an opportunity as a province to jump on that bandwagon and everything, not just the actual production of hydrogen, but the many spin-offs that'll come from these major industries being fostered right here in our region. I think it's as positive as anything could be to hear today. And uh, for all regions, not just here, all parts of Newfoundland, uh, they should see this as a, a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. Well, for some, really quite bullish on it, and many people who are send me notes on it are really in and send me constant updates with some of the investments that are being made by companies and or uh, provinces or countries on green hydrogen. So the demand is surging. I don't think anyone can deny that. Where our province can play a role, I guess it all depends on where you are, whether or not you're in close proximity to one of these developments or not, which I think fuels some people's either uh, position or acceptance of it but it seems like it's coming and it is, you know and again this is not me just trying to conveniently read between the lines if the government says quite clearly that this Europe can absolutely be our primary export market for our green hydrogen well that seems to me that the government is also all in I would have to agree and I mean they are attending these symposiums on the uh, on the industry and of course like meeting the partners that are involved that are imminently important for everything from the capital to see these projects off the ground to the expertise in being able to deliver the engineering and the actual physical production machine it, it, it represents to me, it, it, it's an opportunity for Newfoundland based upon something that we probably never really appreciated or we took for granted before, and that being the fact that we're a windy area. Well, that's great for wind power, but I also am hearing also discussions of uh, projects for tidal power uh, and lots of forms of, of renewable green energy, and for once, you know, just recognized as the number two place on the planet for mineral exploration and the, and the, uh, uh, I guess the benefit thereof. Maybe today, I guess the reason for my call is there's some, there is some reason to be optimistic again in Newfoundland, and probably to think that, who knows, maybe we can recover from the mess that we find ourselves in after the past few years and our current state of finances and whatever could get a lot better. You know, the concept of improving the economy 
you know, I th- again, I think it's a prudent question to ask what's in it for us because for the proponents, what's in it for them is profit. What's in it for yeah. us? I mean, jobs in the initial construction phase, absolutely. Then ongoing permanent jobs during operation, fair enough. Then it's the price of the land lease and then the water royalty, and I think there's some questions to be asked about that. But it doesn't, even if you're all in on green hydrogen, asking about what's actually in it for us is a fair question. And again, if it's one thing for someone sitting in the city here to be okay this makes for a great opportunity economically to get in on the ground floor in this transition fuel conversation because it's easy enough for me to say i'm not going to live close by where these turbines are quite different if you're living on the port of port peninsula i would suggest yes and i think the actual physical location of these things are very important i, I think that's kind of why world energy has looked at a buffer zone uh, of a kilometer for the placement of these things so that that fits and suits uh, most uh, construction scenarios. And in fairness to the people of port uh they've got to be comfortable with the the what what what's what they're building and what's going to be near them. I think probably some of the some of the major concerns have been alleviated, but there's still people that have you know, some serious viable concerns and whatever that need to be addressed. If that means something as much as probably um, buying these people out, if they're if, if they're okay with that, if they don't mind being relocated, if there's an issue in that particular area. I'm not really sure of any other than what we've seen in the media, but at the same time, they're not to be downplayed. This is this, these people's homes. So if this project comes here there should be also as well as provincial royalties i guess and 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 benefit on the long term from the use of the resource there should also be something that includes a local component uh in terms of benefit to the communities that are affected and whereby these things would be located uh be it help with water projects to put in better water systems you know or whatever would be identified by each area as being important to them and uh, in the long run I think that can be done uh, with certain assurances and and guarantees that you know they're not going to affect water levels and this type of thing as the evidence and the information becomes uh, available I know that over the past little while a lot of the resistance to the project here has been alleviated with being made available and having access to information because there was a lot of misinformation out there. Uh, and generally speaking, there always is. Dave, I'm going to take my final break of the morning. I appreciate you making time. And I thank you very much for your time. And to everybody, let's look at green projects with a positive light, but yet not a giveaway. That should never happen. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Patty. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right, final break of the morning. When we come back, Phil's here to talk about the passing of Gus Etchigary. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Philip Earl. You're on the air. Um, good morning, Patty. Uh, thanks for the opportunity uh, to say a few words about the passing of Gus Etchigary. Uh, it's just it's really hard to put it in words, but, you know, there was something really special about Gus. I mean, he was a giant of a man in the fishery all around and maybe it was his background his people came from they were bass fishermen over in the bay of biscay back 
they were the greatest fishermen in the world back in the 15, 14, 1500s. Very smart, very brave, uh, undaunted people. And there must be something about this he inherited through his, through his forefathers. But Gus was really an unbelievable special person, a dynamic person. I never knew of anyone who had so much total knowledge in all aspects of the fishery. Instant recall at everything. And his vision, he had this wonderful vision. I know what I'm talking about here in Gus's greatness because I knew someone in my lifetime who was a similar great person. That was my father. I'm not talking about my father, but Captain Guy Earl, who had the biggest saltwater fish business in the 50s and 60s before he died. He was a great person also. He was a genius on the salt fishery, and Gus was a genius on the fishery. And he had a vision like my father, which was for the people to restore the fishery, rebuild it, and protect it. And the second part of all of that, the coastal people of Newfoundland, the people that lost lost their heritage, that that, uh, uh, that loved the, the the culture and heritage of fishing, inshore fishing in particular. And, and and Gus was very saddened to see this being taken from us. It had started in when we joined Confederation, but really bad when, when the moratorium started in '92. But if if you can say in a few words about Gus, I mean, it's an emotional thing for me because once I got to know him, I looked up to him uh, as someone with great wisdom. And when you meet someone like that, it affects you, it changes your personality. And I love the man. And and but I, I will tell you. He he was a fishing elder in this province in this province, but he was one of Canada's greatest fishing elders in the history of Canada. There was no no one no one could match him in my opinion. Now that's a very very short summary of Gus, eh? Well, it's it's lofty praise. I'm in the email thread. That includes tributes that have come from yourself, Dave Vardy, Wilfred Bartlett, a reaction from one of Gus's sons. I, I, I can't remember if it was Grant or Glenn, but. To a man, to a woman, folks who have any interest at all in the fishery, I haven't heard anyone say anything really bad about Gus. I mean, even if we're talking about introduction of factory freezer trawlers and the breakup of FPI and whatnot, his knowledge of the industry, the passion which with he spoke about the fishery, and the hope to restructure it to apply some better governance so that we can rebuild stocks, so that we can improve it, because we just have a tattered seasonal spat year over year over year over year and nothing seems to be improving on that front so my question to you uh, phil is who replaces his voice well and this you know it's a difficult topic in five minutes but for example gus was talking about royal greenland a few years ago when they first came here and gus said this is going to be a tragedy don't do this and look what's happened now and, and this year, Royal Greenland has expanded and taken over, and all these small boat fishermen and their licenses have kind of been swallowed up by this giant company. Gus anticipated all this, but, you know, uh, uh, it's hard to believe. You know, Gus was 25 when Confederation started. He was born in, in 24, so it's roughly 25 years. He was 25 years old, Confederation. He's lived a long life, and all this while up until now, 98 fire and energy and never lost his passion, never lost his brilliance. He was an incredible man, speaking up for fishery. But who's going to replace Well, there's nobody can replace him. But I will tell you something. He, he had a legacy, which was one of truth to follow what was right for the fisheries for our people. And we can't do any better than any of, us, any of us who want to follow and fight for what he did. There's no better way to fight for it than what he's legend of, his truth, to follow in this path, to keep after governments, to restore 
uh, the rights to our fishery, to get the nose and tail of the table, to get custodian management, which is things he fought for. I saw papers written in 76 that Joey sent to Ferriero uh, Trudeau and said, yes, we're going to include the nose and tail of the bank. We're going to get custodian. Mr. Harper was here a few years. He promised it. When he went back, it disappeared. We have to get the nose and tail of the bank, get the foreigners off of there who's taken away this migrating fish. Can you imagine a moratorium for 30 years? We're meant to be one or two. 30 years. And the ground fishery. Listen, it's very hard to solve this problem that you just asked, what are we going to do? We have to get all the people, all the fishermen, big and small, inshore, offshore, crowd fishermen. Everybody has to speak the same language, and it hasn't happened. And one reason it hasn't happened, when you take away a man's job, like happened in the moratorium 30 years ago, it took away 30,000 harvesters and fractured their families. And these people had one thing happen to them. They had their dignity crushed. Now, what's a man going to do with no dignity? He loses his fight. So we've lost the voice from the coast of people because their dignity has been squashed by the federal government. And it needs to be restored. We need to fight it. Following God's path. His path, his passion, I, I can't think of anything better. Certainly, it was a man who provided me with enormous or copious amounts of information, whether it be in our phone calls, our conversations on air, but off air, I would guarantee you get four or five emails chock full of information, historical context, what have you, from Gus, which I really appreciate it, because the more you know, the better informed you can have and better conversations we can have. Uh, Phil, I know as a man you looked up to and a friend and a person you admire, I'm sorry for your loss, just like everyone else who's been chiming in, whether it be my work email or that email thread that I'm on with you gentlemen it's uh, a voice that will be missed Gus was a dynamo in the fishery you can't replace him he was our real ambassador to the coastal people for love of our fishery Gus Etchigiri was the best appreciate your time Philip thank you Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Dr. Phil Earl has the last word of the day, but we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.